You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 580. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 12th of August, 2023. In today's episode, a last-minute go-around averts a runway collision in Boston. An American Airlines flight starts a takeoff roll with an open cockpit window. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 580 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger Stern. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins on 92.3 FM in New York City. (laughs) Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Uh, It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, an almost retired pilot at a major legacy airline based in the United States of America. And joining us from her lakeside studio in... Kagalecki, Kagalecki. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument-rated back-stabbing jumper-dumper. It's Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. That almost retired part sounds really nice. I'm nowhere near that, so I, <laughs> I'll be envious. I'll be envious when you reach actual retirement. For a few more years. All about choices, stuff. I know. (laughs) All right. And also joining us from his studio... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Great to be back on the show. Looking forward to a great one, as usual. And did you know... Today is the anniversary of the arrival of Christopher Columbus in the Canary Islands on his first voyage to the New World. Everybody knows that, Nick. And also, I think he was flying an A340. From his home in the air capital, low and slow pilot, A&P mechanic, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Camacho. Hey, Captain Jeff. Glad to uh, be back after taking a couple weeks off. Glad you were able to make it with us this morning, Nick. I know you're a very, very busy man. All right. And also joining us from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier, aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our dear, lovely producer, Liz Piper. Good day, everyone. I was actually here last night, too. Oh, Extra credit for you. (laughs) Have have a good show, guys. See you later. Okie dokie.
stand by for news. All right, we're going to start with this one in our news folder. It says from the Aviation Herald, avherald.com. A United Boeing 767-300 registration, November 641, United Airlines, UA, uh, I guess it would be Uniform Alpha, performing flight 702 from Newark, New Jersey to Houston Intercontinental, Texas, landed on Houston's runway 26 left at uh, 10.34 local time, but touched down a wee bit hard. The aircraft rolled out without further incident, taxied to the apron. There were no injuries. Uh, let's see, according to information the Aviation Herald received, the aircraft sustained substantial damage, including wrinkles in the fuselage. The FAA reported aircraft made a hard landing and post-flight inspection revealed damage to the fuselage. And uh, we'll show in the chapter image and in the show notes, and of course if you're watching with us live, there you go. There's a picture of the wrinkled skin now you know all of us when we get a little bit older we tend to get some wrinkles but that's a big that's a darn big wrinkle there and i think botox shots that we're going to uh (laughs) hear that uh it needs more than botox liz yes i think i've heard or read that uh, this is probably going to be a write-off a whole a whole loss do they take that out of his wages jeff I think so. Payroll deduct, $50 per paycheck, yeah. I think, pay period. <laughs> yeah. it, it will take some time for him to actually, or they. Well, I don't know. Those old Boeings aren't worth very much, but I th- you're probably right. Mm. Okay. Already we're starting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anything else to say? Uh, don't touch down hard. Don't do that. Like that hard. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't look like particularly difficult weather conditions Mm-mm. so that nah, sad we've all got a uh, a few of those in our <laughs> history oh, yeah i know i i've got a couple and i've managed to get away with it the the thing we always dreaded on the airbus was uh, when the printer started churning out paper as you were taxiing in and it used to do it all of its own accord and at the top it would be entitled report 15 and a report 15 a was a, a firm landing. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and we couldn't just tear it up and throw it away or burn it or something because it was sent off, you know, <laughs> data link directly to the engineers. And we went, oh, damn. Get rid of the evidence. <laughs> um, it's, it's, interestingly, our airplane doesn't do that, Nick, but there is one time... I think maybe more, but the one time that our printer starts printing without us, us, you know, sending the direction to print something. And that's when we're rerouted. And every time I hear that Uh, printer starting to run over there on the first officer's side to the right of the first officer, I look at him and go, did you, did you print something? No. Oh, <laughs> this is not good news. Usually, it's not good news. Sometimes Brad it has is, some. But... Brad has some unverified. Okay, uh, the news Sultan here. Wings says I heard new hire fo at the controls, not verified. Oh, okay. There we go. He might have some inside information uh, there regarding. Um, yeah, made about may have been well, a I new think person. He's always got to accept a few uh, are going to be a training hazard problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that sometimes it's just the cost of doing business. We had an Acme 757 landing at uh, Raleigh-Durham a few years back, and uh, it was the first officer's first uh, trip, I think. I'm not sure it was an OE or if it was his first regular trip off of his uh, operating experience flight. Uh, 
and he pranged it on at uh, Raleigh Durham landing. I think it was on five or in two three right, and basically it broke the airplane so badly they had to scrap the airplane. Ouch! And that, like, can you imagine? You're brand new. You're on probation. It's your first yeah. landing, and then Talk about bam! Your confidence. <laughs> Oops, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Not good. No. All right. No, Steph's going to cover one. Yeah. Oh, is Steph going to cover one? Mm-hmm. Okay. A JetBlue E190 at Boston on February 27th, 2023, collision on runway averted by late go around. A JetBlue ERJ190 registration, November 179, Juliet Bravo, performing flight 206 from Nashville, Tennessee to Boston, Mass. Was on final approach to Boston's runway four right, cleared to land on the runway. A business jet had been cleared to line up and wait on the crossing runway nine. The crew of the Embraer already cleared to land, heard that clearance, acknowledged the clearance, and proceeded onto the runway. However, commenced their takeoff run without clearance. Uh-oh. Uh, let's see. The... Uh, When the tower controller noticed the business jet had begun their takeoff run, he instructed the Embraer to go around. The NTSB reported the Embraer was already over the runway for right when they reached their lowest and closest point at about 30 feet above ground level after initiating the go around. An observer in the cockpit videotaped the approach. The NTSB provided a single frame out of the video, uh, which we are uh, showing right now in Mm -hmm. our our video. On... So this comes out of their final report. Uh, I feel like I'll go ahead and read that, okay. which they just came out with on August 4th, so just the other week. Um, so it was a Hoppa jet flight, uh, the business jet. The crew was taking off without a takeoff clearance, which resulted in a conflict uh, with a jet blue flight, which we already uh, said as they were uh, cleared to land on an intersecting runway. The NTSB analyzed the following. JetBlue's Flight 206 flight crew initiated a go-around while over the runway, or over runway 04 right due to Hoppa Jet Flight 280, taking off without a takeoff clearance from runway 9. Runways 04 right and 9 are uh, at Boston are intersecting runways. The Boston Tower controller had instructed the pilot of uh, the business jet, Hoppa Jet Flight 280, to line up and wait on runway 9, while JetBlue 206 had been cleared to land on 4 right. Um, Hapajet uh, 280's flight crew read back the controller's instructions to line up and wait. However, they began the takeoff roll instead. The airport surface detection equipment, model X, so A-S-D-E-X, alerted, and the controller issued go-around instructions to JetBlue. JetBlue's flight crew initiated a go-around while over for right prior to reaching the intersection with runway 9. The closest proximity between both airplanes occurred when JetBlue was about 30 feet uh, AGL above ground level during the landing flare, close to the point where both runways intersected. And then we had that picture that we were showing from the, the video that was taken by the flight deck observer. Um, and they provided that video to the NTSB and they released this single photo for uh, perspective on how close they actually came. Um, if you're not watching the video, um, it's it's close. It, that yeah. business jet is right in front of them. Should be able to see that in your if you're on your whatever your podcast player is if it supports chapter images you're you're probably looking at that image right now. If go. not, we have uh, we'll have that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes on further in this final report. It says the captain of Hopajet two eight zero said that they had received clearance to cross runway four left on taxiway Echo, then take taxiway Mike to runway nine. On taxiway Mike, he said they had heard a clearance that 
seems to be lineup and weight. He further stated that he probably responded to the clearance, but in his mind, they were cleared for takeoff. He said they performed the takeoff at 6.55 local time p.m., and during cruise, they received a message from ATC providing them with a phone number to call upon landing. Yikes. After landing at FXE, that's... Uh, Think about where that is. Um, Boston Tower told them that they had taken off without authorization and caused an airplane that had been cleared to land on four runway four to execute a go around, passing about 400 feet above them. The first officer of the JetBlue 206 flight was the pilot flying, and they were on the ILS runway four right approach. The captain said they had been cleared to land, and he had completed the landing checklist. On the tower frequency, they heard that an aircraft had been given lineup and weight instructions as they entered the flare after crossing the threshold of four right about 30 feet above the ground. He saw an airplane cross four right on runway nine from his left and going to the right, but could not estimate how far away the airplane was. Uh, just a quick interruption. I, sure. When I was reading this along with you, um, I thought maybe this had something to do with the Hawaii incident uh, that we may be talking about uh, later in the show uh, because they talked about the luau instructions. But apparently, that's not what that actually stands for. Yeah. Different, different incident, different news story. <laughs> Luau is uh, well, I've, I've never seen that. Wait. I've never seen an acronym L-U-A-W before in my life. I've never seen it either. And but it took very me, good on you. For it took do, me, I, well, I'm glad, so in my mind, I kind of read ahead half a second there. And I yeah. thought, like I did, I had a brief like pause, so I'm glad it didn't come across as a No, I mean, pause. it was like, wow, she's uh, very familiar with this <laughs> acronym. With she's it. Definitely on with it. it, yeah. On it today. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is you know this is interesting. That's kind of um, maybe think some some expectation bias here on the uh, mm -hmm. part of the BizJet captain. You know, they told him to line up and wait. He read it back correctly, but in his mind, he was expecting a takeoff clearance, and he just went to take off. And yeah, and if there's, I mean, that when you're especially if you've been, you know, as you know, step because the kind of flying that you do, it's mm -hmm. easy to get fatigued. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes your mind plays tricks on you. And if you're ever, I think most of people that are listening that are professional pilots know this uh, deep down inside, but maybe sometimes because of pride or whatever else, you don't want to ask the question, are, were we clear for takeoff or was that just line up and wait? You know, and then if there's any, any doubt from either first officer or captain, then you say, let's go ahead and ask. Let's just clarify this, make sure. Yeah. You know. So there's there's never a problem clarifying to ask nope. um, what instructions are. If you're not sure, if there's any doubt, it's so much easier to ask and get clarification um, than to just say, yeah, I, th I think that's what it was. Let's just go ahead and proceed. Um, the type of flying I do, like you alluded to, I'm basically repeating the same flight every 20 minutes with slight variations and Typically talking to uh, almost every time it's a different controller, but sometimes it's if we're quick enough, it can be the same one again. But um, a lot of times it's the same cadence and what we expect to hear in terms of different clearances that we're looking for. But every once in a while, one will be omitted or it will be different. Um, and it's very easy to have in your mind. Yeah, I heard that. But that was the flight before because it's only been 20 minutes and our brains aren't very good at, you know, yeah, resetting or, or slowing down time in a way that makes good logical sense always, especially when there's a lot of other things going on. So here, busy environment, busy airport, lots of instructions, taxi instructions, you know, you're expecting to be cleared for takeoff. And there you go. 
And good on the JetBlue crew for having that SA, that spatial awareness. Uh, situational uh, awareness. Situational awareness. And I guess spatial is part of mm-hmm. the situation. And, and and doing a good, you know, cross-check, you know, mm-hmm. um, paying attention to, you know, what has been, what instructions have been given to certain people and making sure uh, that that uh, flight that was been had been told to line up and wait, they're actually doing that. And Interesting to me, that. though, you know, that the uh, I forgot the name of the the, the business jet Hop, jet uh, really were kind of oblivious that it sounds like they they didn't realize that someone had gone around four hundred feet above them. Yeah, their SA wasn't very good at all. Yeah, I mean, if I'm on runway nine in Boston and I'm clear for takeoff, you you can be damn sure you're going to look that over I'm at looking right. over to my right and you know forty five degrees and see yep. if anybody's out there on final. Mm-hmm. For that runway, and then I'm also looking at my TCAST. TCAST, we have so sure. many tools at our disposal yeah. at this point. It's you know, it's there's probably a lot of factors involved. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, workload, fatigue. You know, I think yep. any of those things are are plausible. But at the end of the day, you got to just take that brief pause, ask for clarification, make sure that what you heard and what you expect to do is really what happened. So. Yep. Happy ending. Could have been bad. Happy ending for sure. But happy ending. And we can all appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the happy ending. Don't we all? (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah. All right. Uh, Any other additional uh, comments? I'd be very surprised if the Hopper crew didn't hear the jet blue going over the top of the cabin. And they must have gone, what the hell was that? Because, uh, you know, they, they looked very close. Uh, in that still frame you put up, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminds me of my military days when uh, if we had somebody on the end of the runway and we were do- practicing one? circuits and uh, we were told to uh, overshoot, we, we'd offered overshoot at like 20 feet in full burner <laughs> over the top of whoever Oopsie. was at the just lining up going... <laughs> Yeah, well, I overshot. <laughs> he didn't say what height. I had to go around it. I haul boxes uh, so. has a very important comment here. I haul boxes says in our live audience. I always thought SA meant substance addiction. <laughs> Maybe I should start to review my sim performance records. Then, yeah, probably should. Yeah, very sensible. Brilliant. Okay, number three. All right, number three, uh, we're going to go to. And uh, that would be C. And uh, yes, Brad, the Sultan of Wings, uh, brought this to our attention on our last episode. And this is from Simple Flying. It's also Simple Aviation Writing. Um, And it's a uh, YouTube video. We're not going to play the YouTube video because we're trying to focus on the fact that this is not a video program. This is an audio podcast. So what we're going to do here is uh, I found this uh, audio on liveatc.net. And I did a little bit of snipping here and there to kind of, uh, you know, make it so that all the uh, uh, extraneous, is that right? Extraneous? Extraneous. uh, audio is eliminated, and we can just get to the meat of the uh, of the subject here. So let's take a listen. American two ninety seven, only tower, only two four left line of weight. Four left line of weight, American two ninety seven. American two ninety seven, wind two four zero eight, gusts one seven, are now Delray, runway two four left, clear for takeoff. Two four left, clear for takeoff, are now to Delray, American two ninety seven. Delray tower, Alaska two ninety two. 
12 mile final, 2-4 right. Alaska 1092, I like that when 2-4 is at 8, gust 1-7, I like 2-4 right, clear to land. 2-4 right, clear to land, Alaska 1092. Jeffrey 942, contact Coke out of Archer. Switch departure, Jeffrey 942. American 297, reject them. American 297, Roger, cancel takeoff, clearance, and make the last turn available. Copy. American 297, say a reason. Window popped open. I'm sorry, say again, the last? Window popped open. American 297, Roger, uh, do you need to go somewhere and stop for a little bit? Negative, hold for a turn, uh, taxi back. American 297, Roger, left turn, echo, taxi to the full length. Echo, full length, American 297. A few minutes later. American 297, LA Tyrone, 24 left, line up, wait. 24 left, line up, wait, American 297. American 297, 1250-11, RNAV Del Rey, runway 24 left, clear for takeoff. For left, clear for takeoff, RNAV Del Rey, American 297. American 297, contact Spokane Departure, good day. Departure, American 297, good day. And they lived happily ever after. Another happy mm-hmm. ending. Another happy ending. <laughs> uh, I had fun with that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was all on liveatc.net by by the way, including that beautiful music at the end. <laughs> um, was somebody having a, a, a quick cigarette with the window open? Was what was going well, on there? I don't know. Uh, now this article from Simple Flying uh, says that um, you know it talks about what happened here. The uh, on takeoff roll um, in a low speed regime. They don't mention that, but that's what happened here. Uh, the uh, one of the cockpit windows popped open, and it was uh, kind of interesting in their article saying, "Well, we're assuming it was the cockpit window and not one of the passenger uh, windows." And I'm thinking, if one of the passenger <laughs> windows pops open, you got a major problem. <laughs> They're not meant yeah. to do that. Um, and it said the cause of the window popping open could range from improper closure, yes, by the pilots, to a structural or pressure pressurization failure. Uh, no, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we've determined that the Airbuses don't really start getting pressure pressurized until the until uh, they lift off. So I don't think it's a pressure pressurization failure. Well, that that's true, but Airbuses are pretty clever. If they sense that a door is open, uh, it won't. Um, it'll it'll send up all sorts of warnings if you try to get airborne because. If you get airborne, even if it's a sensor fault, uh, in falsely indicating that a door is open, uh, it won't allow you to pressurize the airplane uh, after you've got airborne. So you've got to have the, everything indicating closed. Having said that, the cockpit windows on an Airbus don't have a sensor on them. So there's not a warning attached to a cockpit window, uh, but it is part of the uh, it's a vital checklist item, and um, it's one of the last ones uh, in your before takeoff checklist. And uh, it's a pretty e- easy check to do because there's a big lever. It's either forward, and the uh, uh, there's no red tag showing, or it's aft, and there is a big red tag showing to, that the window is the handle is not locked in position. Is it possible uh, that you could have an almost? To the full closed and like it's closed, obviously they wouldn't notice that the you know, window was open, but maybe not completely closed and locked. Not locked, yeah. That, like that's the very tough because yeah. the, the, the action to open the window is to grab hold of the lever, which is in the forward position, and you have to push it down about two inches 
and that causes the red tag to come up. Once it's down, you can then lever it aft, and that causes the window to move outwards, and then you can pull the whole device attached to the window aft to open it. So in order to unlock the window, you've got to push that lever downwards in the first case, and that forces the red flag up. So if the red flag was down, that handle was in the lock position. So I'm thinking maybe it was. It looked like it was in the closed position. Obviously, there it, it should be obvious to everybody in the cockpit if one of the windows is open, especially you know when you're about to take off. Um, and it just wasn't completely latched, or whatever. And it just as they started rolling, it just was. It was shaking enough that you know, it was able to roll back or out or I don't know. I've never never flown heard of it happening before. No? So what's what's the your thing then? What what what's your uh, analysis? That they've been of this? using what the window and someone neglected to secure it properly. Right, but uh, I mean, would be my but thought. it wouldn't be fully open though, would it? I mean, that would seem no, okay. I wouldn't have thought so. Okay, I think but, we're saying um, the same thing then. Okay. So, um, let's see, in this article, pilots often keep the cockpit window open during aircraft refueling to keep an available line of clear communication with the ground staff. And I know that is... (laughs) (laughs) Staff! Um, Let me know when it's full! Um, No, that is... I, I think that whoever's writing this doesn't really quite understand how things work in the passenger airline world. Um... We, you know, you very rarely, now sometimes we'll open up the window if it's really hot and the air conditioning system isn't working well and just to get some airflow uh, up there. Or if you need to, if you do need to talk to the, um, the uh, lead uh, ramp agent um, and, and, you know, you want them to pull the air off or do something, then you sometimes will just open up the window and just yell at them from above. Uh, but uh, as far as uh, you know, keeping the window open during aircraft refueling, I don't think that's a thing. At least it's not with Acme. Um, I haul boxes uh, again from our live audience. Did someone adjust their seat position using that handle? Hmm, that's possible. Kind of a nice place to grab on, right? To kind of adjust <laughs> yeah. your seat. Yeah, but it's it it's pretty secure. Um, yeah. You know, it's really hard um, thing. I mean, it is a really good lever to grab. But you, like I say, you've got to push the damn thing down against a spring uh, before you can start pulling it out of uh, in to unlock the window and move hmm. the window. So, uh, and there is a handle just up here, uh, so it is possible that someone now, grabbed it. For that I way. think that um, it it happens often enough, although we probably don't hear about it very often. Uh, that uh, it's part of, I think, everybody that I've ever heard, uh, a um, abnormal briefing, uh, and I'm, I'm not mean, meaning a normal uh, briefing that is not normal, but, you know, when you're briefing initially with a new crew member, uh, like what, like maybe uh, rejected takeoff um, scenarios and that kind of thing, and uh, I usually uh, start off with saying, okay, be, be from the time we release brakes to 80 knots, that's the low speed realm in the airplane that I fly. You know, if if a window pops open or, um, you know, the uh, master caution, master warning, unusual noises, vibrations, tire failures, that kind of thing, all these things, we will reject the takeoff. But above 80 knots, we transition to the high speed realm. Even if the window does, quote, pop open, um, we are going to continue the takeoff because at that point it's riskier to reject the takeoff than it is to and, and deal. I mean, reject the takeoff. Uh, it, you're better off by continuing the takeoff and 
trying to close the thing once you're in the air. And I, I mentioned to Liz that it would be um, kind of fun to, uh, before I retire, to just see what it's like to have the window open you know, when, when you're in the air. But I'm, I, trust me, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm just kind of curious about how noisy or, or not uh, it would be with that window open when the airplane is actually in flight. Has anybody here um, had the... Now, Nick um, Camacho, um, I, I know that uh, your world of flying, GA flying, and the debonair and that kind of thing, is it even possible to have a window open uh, in, in your airplane? Yeah, so uh, in the little airplanes, the Luscom and the Champ, they can fly around all day with the windows open. And I probably fly... I've probably flown more with the window open than with the window closed in those airplanes. Uh, the debonair has a small storm window um, that I think can be open to maybe like 140 miles an hour. I don't know. It's printed on it. I've never flown with it open just because it doesn't seem like it's uh, – it just doesn't look like it's designed super well for being out in the, the airstream. Um I have flown, uh, when I was getting checked out in the Bonanza, one of the tasks we did was uh, taking off with the door open. Um, and So the Bonanza door is hinged at the front, you know, and it opens from the back like a car door. And uh, so it's got an unusual latching mechanism, or it's got a kind of a complex latching mechanism, I guess I'd say. And it's not uncommon for those doors to pop open in flight. And usually it happens, you know, when you reach a certain speed on takeoff roll or, or right after you rotate. Um and uh, you know the, it's not a it's not a significant issue, right? The door pops open and then it goes, it gets sucked out in the stream a little bit, but you end up with the door open about an inch or two. So it has just a minimal effect on performance of the airplane. Uh, but there's been multiple instances of that happening, and then um, people either not expecting it or um, kind of focusing on dealing with the door. Uh, and you could just come around and land. It's not hurting the door. The airplane's flying fine. But, uh, you know, there's been multiple instances of people uh, basically not maintaining control of the airplane and and uh, stalling oh. the airplane and crashing the airplane. Because, because they're, they're so focused the on trying to close yeah. the door. Oh. Yeah. Yikes. So it's a it's become an important checkout item that the Bonanza Society, you know, checks everybody out on and, and shows them that, you know, when we're doing our six or eight circuits or however many we did – they open the door on one of them so that you can basically say, hey, look, the airplane flies fine. It's a little bit louder, but keep flying the airplane. Come back around and land. It'll be okay. All right. Uh, a comment from our live audience, Super Fred Driver. He's a C5 pilot. Had a window pop open in Fred at 152 knots on takeoff roll. Finally got it shut about 2,000 feet above ground level after forcing the jet to pressurize and close it. Yeah, pressurization is your friend in this case. <laughs> if you can <laughs> get yeah. the window somewhere close to where it should be, and then the pressurization should probably take uh, care so of it. So I guess that one uh, comes in with, yeah, yeah, that works. Yeah, that's what, yeah, all the airplanes that I've flown, the windows have always come into the cockpit, not out. Yeah, uh, same for the Airbus. Okay. Uh, I was just going to mention that uh, I've flown a jet with uh, a cockpit window open. Uh, that was... Uh, in a Hawker Hunter, because the canopy there uh, slides back, 
to reveal your head single seater um and uh, you're allowed, in theory the the speed at which you're allowed to fly with the canopy back is 200 knots so you can go around the circuit with it open <laughs> so as a student so you couldn't help i thought i'd give this a go this sounds like fun <laughs> oh, like on purpose? <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so i'm downwind and i i wind the electric winder wind the canopy back uh, at about 180 knots, and I just the noise was unbelievable. <laughs> Apart from all the dust which comes flying <laughs> up from the floor, because you know it's uh, years of accumulated <laughs> muck down there, uh, uh, and a lot of that got in my eyes, uh, and I just couldn't hear a thing on the radio, so <laughs> I had to give up in the end and closed it again. Well, well I'm not going to do it. I did try putting my fingers out. Which was probably not a sensible move because um, they didn't stay there for very long. Wow. Rip the glove yeah. off, your flying glove off, and get it. Yeah, I, I've, I've got one missing. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fine. Fill in the blanks. Uh, other than that. But it was an interesting experience, at least like because you are literally sitting on top of a jet engine, which is what, like five feet away. And they are very noisy things. So mm. that's where a lot of the noise comes from. You just can't hear anything. Well, that's one of the ways we're different, Nick. I would never, I would think about it, but I would never do it because <laughs> I'm, I'm too much of a one scaredy D. cat. One <laughs> Good for you. Okay. Um, control room is uh, telling us to move on and stop talking. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, this next item is from verticalmag.com. And it, it has... Uh, to do with this fatal Chinook helicopter crash that we did talk about. Uh, it was a little over a year ago, July 21st, 2022. Uh, investigators from the National Transportation Safety Board have demonstrated that an Apple iPad likely jammed against the co-pilot's left pedal prior to the fatal crash of a Rotac helicopter services Chinook in Idaho last year. Uh, they had, This um, helicopter had been filling its bucket on a long line in the Salmon River on the afternoon of July 21st, 2022, when it began spinning to the left. Eyewitness video captured the helicopter continuing its counterclockwise rotation as it descended and impacted the river just 13 seconds later. Although ground firefighters on the scene quickly extracted the pilot, Thomas Hayes, 41, and co-pilot Jared Bird, 36, from the water, both men ultimately died from their injuries. The NTSB has not yet released its final report. Actually, uh, or have they? Uh, no. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. Which will include its determination of probable cause. However, the newly opened public docket for the crash contains an exemplar helicopter and iPad examination summary. That details how investigators established the source of damage on the flight crew's iPad, which was recovered from the river with three distinct gouge marks and a bend from the back of the case toward the screen. Apple iPads and other so-called electronic flight bags, or EFBs we like to call them, have become common equipment in aircraft cockpits used for flight planning as supplemental navigation aids and to replace paper documents, among other purposes. NTSB investigators conducted their study using an exemplar CH-47D with a cockpit configuration similar to that of the accident helicopter. During the accident flight, the pilot was sitting in the left seat and the co-pilot in the right. Using auxiliary power to activate hydraulic assistance, investigators first pushed the pilot's left pedal forward, which resulted in the co-pilot's left pedal also moving forward. Left pedal is used to commence a yaw to the left and or stop a right yaw and vice versa. 
Investigators then placed the study's iPad between the left pedal and the airframe next to the heel slide support assembly on the co-pilot side. When additional pressure was applied to the pilot's left pedal, the iPad fell and jammed between the left pedal and heel slide support assembly. That prevented the pedals from recentering while also pushing against the co-pilot's left pedal adjustment lever. When pressure was applied to the right pedal, the iPad was squeezed in between the pedal and the heel slide support assembly. The gouges in the recovered iPad aligned with a sharp vertical medical piece of the assembly underneath the heel slide. Additional right pedal input forced the iPad to apply more pressure to the co-pilot's pedal adjustment lever. Examination of the uh, accident helicopter's wreckage revealed that the co-pilot's left pedal was at the forwardmost adjustment setting, while his right pedal was at the middle adjustment setting. According to investigators, the accident co-pilot's height was 5 feet 10 inches. During the study, with uh, seat restraints on and seats adjusted for comfort, neither a slightly shorter 5 foot 7 nor a slightly taller 6 foot 2 man could reach the iPad in its jammed position. Investigators also pointed out that the co-pilot's flight helmet would have further complicated any attempts to retrieve the iPad as the hel- uh, helmet would have contact the visor over the instrument panel. Andy Evans, director of the Aviation Safety Consultancy uh, Aero Assurance, said that while operators are general- generally required to conduct risk assessments before adopting EFBs, there is often not an explicit requirement to consider the risk of the EFB as a loose object. Hopefully this accident will prompt operators to have a long, hard look at all possible loose articles and cockpits and robustly securing valuable tools and sources of situational awareness like EFBs. Wow, can you believe that? I mean, I I can see that happening. And what a, I'm wondering if they, during this whole accident sequence, which was not, what, just seconds um, as the helicopter was uh, spinning counterclockwise, toward the river i'm wondering if they could if they saw what the what was happening and were just helpless to try to resolve the situation by trying to grab that efb from its position i I guess they just didn't have time or maybe they never knew maybe they just thought the helicopter was going completely out of control and they couldn't figure out why yeah i I think we probably all have learned over the years to recognize a uh, jam control. So I'd be surprised if they didn't realize that the rudder pedals were jamming. They may not have realized the cause. Uh, and I think perhaps, you know, I don't know how strong one of these things are, but uh, if it's in the way, it's in the way. Uh, there's not a lot you can do. Um, and it's often very counterintuitive, even if you could have reached it, to uh, take the pressure off the pedal that's you know, that you need to press to correct the problem so that someone can fish it out, uh, you know, very, very hard and in the time available. Just nightmare scenario for them, sadly. Um, interestingly, of course, EFB is often being retrofitted to a lot of aircraft, including uh, airliners uh, and um, the initial um, EFB holders that we had were sort of suckers that went under the window. They were pretty sophisticated, but you know, along a long flight, and we're not vibrating and maneuvering um, a lot like uh, a helicopter, particularly a firefighting one, uh, would do. Um, they used to just fall off the window, so you go, oh, for heaven's sake, you know. Uh, luckily, they missed everything, but this this right over the control stick in an Airbus. The, the, and it wasn't until, you know, quite a while later that they 
modified most of our aircraft to have um, brackets that were screwed onto the side of the cockpit so to make the whole thing more secure. But occasionally even those sometimes uh, would allow the iPad to slip out. So, you know, I think it, these things need preferably to be integral in the cockpit. And all the time they're uh, an, an add-on, they're just the, the possibility always exists that they'll become a loose object, even if they just fly around in the event of some turbulence and hit somebody. They, they you know, the potential is always there to have a bit, sorry, to have a problem. Well, main man Micah in our audience says this is similar to the helicopter crash in New York City with the tourist helicopter going down because a strap from one of the passenger bags turned off the fuel switch. Yeah, I mean, you don't want like things flying around and hitting things you don't want them to. But I was going to say, uh, Nick, the uh, I think most of the Acme fleet of jets, I could be wrong about this because I don't, I'm not sure about the Airbus world, but uh, at least the airplane that I fly, the Boeing 717, um, still uses that uh, suction cup system. Uh, they're uh, RAM, R-A-M mounts. And these things are pretty reliable. It's a double suction cup uh, mounting system. But they do occasionally, fortunately not at the same time, uh, become unstuck to the to the window. So you have to be, you know, you, it, it, one of the pre-flight items for every flight is to disconnect the suction cups and reconnect them to the window just to make sure that yeah. Yeah, we had the same procedure, but, you know, uh, some of our flights are pretty long. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they, after 10 hours of sitting there and getting warmed up and cooled down by the window heaters, et cetera, um, then, yeah, they are pretty substantial pieces of kit, but sadly they're not 100%. Um, what I found um, works best is uh, licking the window and licking the suction cups <laughs> and then uh, putting them on there and... Well, and, while uh, you're down there, you can always give the control sticker a little suck. <laughs> 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 well, thank you. Thank you for that or advice. Snipping. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are being directed now to uh, F, I believe. G. Uh, G. G. Here we go. All right. The next one here in our news lineup is from the aviationherald.com, avherald.com. Uh, a United Boeing 777-200 registration, uh, November 212 Uniform Alpha, performing flight 1722 from Kahalui, Hawaii, to San Francisco, California. Departed Kahalui's runway 02, climbed to uh, flight level 360, and further flight level 390, landed on San Francisco's runway 28 left, about four hours and 10 minutes past or after their departure. Uh, the aircraft remained on the ground in San Francisco for about two and a half hours, then departed for its next flight. The FAA reported the United Airlines flight crew reported the incident to the FAA as part of a voluntary safety reporting program. The agency reviewed the incident and took appropriate action, but did not elaborate on what uh, incident occurred and also did not comment on a report that had surfaced on Sunday, February 12th, whether this report had any merit or not. The airline stated... After landing at San Francisco, the pilots filed the appropriate safety report. United then closely coordinated with the FAA and ALPA on an investigation that ultimately resulted in the pilots receiving additional training. Safety remains our highest priority. Uh, the All right, so let's uh, skip down. We talked. We covered this pretty well when after it happened. Um, 
let's see, the final report uh, was issued on August 10th. And uh, the investigation docket concluding, uh, so they released the final report and the investigation docket uh, simultaneously, concluding the probable cause of the accident was the flight crew's failure to manage the airplane's vertical flight path, airspeed, and pitch attitude following a miscommunication about the captain's desired flap setting during the initial climb. Uh, United Flight 1722 lost altitude uh, about one minute after departure while in instrument meteorological conditions, which included heavy rain. Yeah, I, I kind of recall looking at the radar um, display at the time, and there was some a lot of convective activity out there. The airplane descended from 2,100 feet to about 748 feet above the water before the crew recovered from the descent. No injuries were reported, and the airplane was not damaged. The NTSB was not originally notified of the event since it did not, did not meet the requirements of Title 49 Code of Federal Regulations Part 830.5. However, the NTSB learned of the event about two months later and chose to open an investigation. By that time, both the cockpit voice and flight data recorder durations had been exceeded. The investigation utilized flight crew statements and other records as information sources. The captain, who was the pilot flying, reported that he and the first officer had initially planned for a flaps 20 takeoff, a flap setting of 20 degrees, with a reduced thrust setting based on performance calculations. However, during taxi, the ground controller advised them that low-level wind shear advisories were in effect. Based on this information, the captain chose a flaps 20 max thrust takeoff instead. That's good. Uh, he hand-flew the takeoff with the auto throttles engaged. During the takeoff, the rotation and, and initial climb were normal. However, as the airplane continued to climb, the flight crew noticed or noted airspeed fluctuations as the airplane encountered turbulence. When the airplane reached the acceleration altitude, the captain reduced the pitch attitude slightly, called for the flap setting to be reduced to flaps 5. According to the first officer, he thought he heard the captain announce flaps 15, which the first officer selected before contacting the departure controller and discussing the weather conditions. The captain noticed that the max operating speed indicator moved to a lower value than expected, and the airspeed began to accelerate rapidly. The captain reduced the engine thrust manually, overriding the autothrottle servos to avoid a flap over speed and began to diagnose the flap condition. He noticed that the flap indicator was showing 15 degrees, and he again called for flaps 5 and he confirmed that the first officer moved the flap handle to the five-degree position. The first officer stated that he knew the captain was having difficulty with airspeed control, and he queried the captain about it, as he considered if his own right-side instrumentation may have been an error. He did not receive an immediate response from the captain. Both pilots recalled that about this time the airplane's pitch attitude was decreasing, and the airspeed was increasing. The first officer recalled that the captain asked for flaps one soon after he had called for flaps five. And when the first officer set the flaps to one degree, he then noticed the airspeed had increased further and the control column moved forward. Both pilots recalled hearing the initial warnings from the ground proximity warning system, GPWS. And the first officer recalled announcing, pull up, pull up, along with those initial JIPWIS warnings. The captain then pulled aft on the control column, initially reduced power to reduce airspeed, and then applied full power to begin the full controlled flight into terrain, CFIT recovery. 
The first officer recalled that the captain, as the captain was performing the recovery, the GPWS alerted again. At the, as the descent began to reverse trend, data showed this occurred about 748 feet above the water. After noting a positive rate of climb, the captain lowered the nose to resume a normal profile, ensured that the flaps and speed brakes were fully retracted, and engaged the autopilot. The remainder of the flight was uneventful. Um, according to the docket, the airline submitted flight information to the NTSB in email, amongst other details, stating at... Um, 145051 so um, let's see vertical speed and pitch attitude continued a negative downward trend to reach a maximum of 8536 feet per minute descent and minus 16.74 degrees respectively yeah that's getting a bit worrisome S- minus 16 deg- that's the kind of thing that Gubby sees in the C-17 when they have all the thrust reversers out and it's doing a um, <laughs> yeah. like one of those uh, yeah. tactical airdrop things where you the, the whole windscreen, of course, they were in IMC, so they didn't see anything out the front windscreen. But still, that is like, holy moly, that is way nose down, minus 16, almost 17 degrees nose low. And that was while they were at 1,386 feet above the, above the water. That's that's crazy. Um, and then at uh, six seconds later, the GPWS too low terrain oral warning uh, happened. And uh, vertical re- uh, when they uh, recovered from this downward trend, vertical acceleration was recorded as uh, 2.66 Gs. So, you know, somewhere between two and a half and three G's of uh, force were applied to the airplane to get it in an upward direction. And I think, I'm not sure exactly what the 777 parameters are as far as maximum G-forces allowed um, positive, but I think that's over that um, limitation as far as I know. The max pitch out attitude was recorded at plus 23.42 degrees. Now, again, this is a 777. That's kind of unusual for the nose of the or the pitch of the uh, 777 to be up at 23. That's not so unusual for the airplane that I fly. It easily will go over 20 degrees. In fact, our initial takeoff target's usually around 20 degrees nose high. But that's not normal for most airliners. Um, I, I would imagine that most airliners would be around the 15, 16 degree uh, nose up attitude initially. I'm, I'm not sure, though. Um so we, we're looking at this graphic, um, and you might be as well if you're listening to the audio podcast. Um, we're seeing uh, the timeline and the vertical path uh, off of uh, the runway in Kahalui. That's just, holy cow, that is very, very scary looking to me. I don't know how you feel about that, Captain Nick. What Could you kind of give us your... Your, uh, yeah. Well, about it? Uh, when they uh, started the recovery, they were, I, I'm trying to do the figures in my head. It's a bit hard. Uh, say 8,000 feet a minute. Uh, they had 750 feet left to go. That's, uh, I don't know, somewhere between six, seven, and eight seconds before impacting the ocean. Yeah, that is, that is a very serious situation to be in. Uh, I can 
I can only imagine that in his attempts to resolve the issues of cleaning up the airplane, that the captain allowed his attention to be drawn away from the instrument that we're always supposed to go back to. Every time that you perform an instrument scan, the one instrument that you're always going to go back to is the attitude indicator. You're going to be watching that and then you're going to your scan goes out to other instruments or to levers and things in the cockpit, but you never allow your attention, particularly when you're hand flying the airplane, to linger uh, on any item for very long before you're coming back to the attitude indicator to confirm your attitude is still correct. It's so vital when you're close to the ground, and yet it is a it is the basis of our, our cockpit instrument scans that we all learn um and he's allowed himself to uh, be pulled away from that requirement and i suspect uh, a lot of this is due to the fact that we use autopilot so much it that we no longer practice this this really concentrated instrument scan uh in the way that we used to when we hand flew everything uh so you know it's just uh, a nature of the beast. So um, uh, it's, a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Uh, and it doesn't take much because all that happened, and I'm sure it happens every single day in uh, countries all around the world, um, one of the pilots will misplace, mismove a flat lever. It's not hard. It's really, you know, it happens in the Airbus. It happens in Boeings. It doesn't matter. And there's a little kerfuffle in the flight deck while the pilot who's doing the flying tries to work out what's happening in the airbus you know you can sometimes bring the flat levers up too early and all of a sudden the airplane goes into alpha lock as the angle of attack increases and then the thrust goes to maximum automatically to protect you and everyone's going what the hell's going on uh, and it takes a little while to accept but Whenever that happens, the most important thing is to keep an eye on your attitude. And uh, I noticed you made a, a comment uh, in the text there, Jeff, that yes. um, you're close to the ground. The one thing you, you should be very reluctant to do is to pull the thrust back in these right. situations. He was so fixated on that speed, and he yeah. was kind of throwing out everything else. Uh, like, I can't overspeed, I can't overspeed. And so his reaction, for me... I would never reduce the power. I would leave the power where it is, and I would I would increase the pitch to keep the airspeed from going ab- above the uh, overspeed uh, for the flap. Because this is just right after takeoff. You're in a big, heavy jet, and you're not that far above the water. I don't. I just don't get that reaction to pull the power back. Yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty common. Uh- also in smaller airplanes, like people just learning to fly, I wouldn't think it would be as common in big airplanes. But, you know, I think sometimes it's kind of a hard concept to grasp that, um, you know, you're generally going to use pitch to manage your airspeed and power to manage your climb and descent versus, um, you know, whereas you come from a car and you have a, th- a throttle in a car and you push the throttle push the throttle down and the, air, the car goes faster. Um Generally, in an airplane, you know, especially like you said, closer to the ground, and when you're slower, um, pitch is really going to be driving your airspeed because it's going to, you know, be correlating to your um, critical angle of attack and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But as we have, we covered the 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 time 
um, that uh, all this happened in was actually pretty damn short. And it doesn't take much for your attention just to be pulled away at a vital moment, and that's exactly what happened. And in things can um, build up very, very quickly uh, when you allow the nose to accidentally drop and you're not monitoring it. And, uh, you know, it just show, goes to show. Uh, there have been many crashes where this has occurred. So yeah. we all need to learn from this and go, right, okay, if I'm in the same situation, I'm going to really, really lock on to the instruments to make sure that whilst I cope with this situation, I don't allow anything else to get out of control. Yeah. You have to focus on what the uh, most important thing is. And uh, shortly after yeah. takeoff, you need to get it climbing away from Earth. All right. Well, it's time now for Getting to Know Us. It's a time of the show where we kind of get all caught up on what... I know the... you blokes already. Is to, Can I go to the toilet? Um, well... <laughs> do what you got to do. Well, okay, but really uh, don't you want to tell... Okay. I'm really <laughs> thought you might want to tell us about what you have been doing, Captain Nick, but just in case you have some kind of a physiological emergency happening, uh, go ahead and tell us what has been happening with you as far as I'm sure you're still uh, in the thick of the uh, bowling competitions. Well, indeed, uh, our club has won League Division One, so we are top of the league, uh, certainly in uh, one of our major leagues that we do, and we're doing extremely well in others, and I think we're basically going to um, have an excellent season from that point of view. Uh, other competitions carry on. It, 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 you finish uh, one and then another one starts, but we're starting to peter out now. As the season grinds to a halt, uh, we'll uh, basically bowl to the end of September, and that'll be it. So it's all starting now wind up which is which is great so uh then we start the winter season indoors uh which will keep us all uh, busy and happy uh nothing much else going on in my life but i did uh interestingly uh get a message from an old student of mine when i was a flying instructor at valley and uh, that was his course graduation uh as you can see uh there's bob on the right hand side of the picture Leaning on his mates. Is that your uncle? Um, they all went on to have great careers. Uh, several went to uh, fighters. One became a test pilot, flew Harriers. Um, sadly, uh, one got onto the lightning, but had a mishap and uh, he died. But the rest are all happy. And Bob, in particular, the big fella on, the, as I say, the right hand side of the picture, um, moved on and up in rank. He had a a stellar career really he uh, uh ended up um you know on a jaguar squadron and um a squadron commander and then he ran the very first RAS station that was equipped with the typhoon fighter jet which uh, brilliant airplane uh and then he moved up and was uh, instrumental in uh, operations tasks during the gulf war uh and um basically did very well but uh, having achieved one-star rank, he uh, decided it was time to pull the plug. Uh, and the reason I'm commenting on him is because 
he has started a podcast, and I said I would uh, mention it on the show. Uh, it's not directly involved uh, with aviation, um, but he uses uh, his uh, excellent career and uh, all that you learn in the military when you've been in as long as he has and achieved the ranks that he has um, to perhaps pass on uh, the training and the knowledge you've picked up to other people. So he ha now has a podcast called Leading for Life, and um, he uh, coaches people uh, in the art of leadership. And it's mainly because in his corporate life, um, he found that a lot of our leaders uh, in industry um, were shy of um, knowledge concerning leadership. And, um, you know, he, he thought, well, there's an avenue here to try and improve performance, people's performance. Uh, a lot of people who were promoted into very senior positions had never received any uh, formal or informal training on leadership. And it applies to our industry as well, not only the managers of our airlines, but uh, the captains, uh, those that perhaps uh, haven't come on the military way, where we know leadership training is an integral part of our, um, our learning to become good officers, uh, because obviously mainly officers do the flying and the commanding of aircraft. Um, so they, we, we naturally receive this training all the way through our careers. In the civil world, it's not quite the same. And uh, it doesn't matter really what your background is. When you're a captain, you do have to display and understand uh, the art of leadership so that you can command those uh, and look after those on your aircraft, not just your crew. And sometimes the crew can be quite a large body of people. Think of a, an A380 captain who's probably got 20 uh, other pilots and cabin crew uh, to look after while uh, he's away from home with them all on his aircraft and at their uh, layover destinations. Um, and even on smaller aircraft, you, you still have an element of leadership over a small crew. It doesn't really matter how um, how big uh, the aircraft is and how many people there are. You still need those same skills. Anyway. All I'm basically getting to is that uh, he will be discussing. He's, he's produced two of these uh, podcasts, two episodes so far, just an intro and, and uh, the first proper episode. And the second episode is coming out, I think, today. Uh, and it's called Leading for Life, uh, from the cockpit to the boardroom, and their stories uh, of how you can exercise and learn and improve your leadership skills. Uh, and I would recommend anyone. It's a it's a free to listen to podcast. Uh, you may well uh, pick up something that you could find of benefit to you in the future, and uh, I commend it to you. Actually, I mean, uh, excellent. Um, and the website would be leading uh, numeral four life.co.uk, I believe. Is, That's uh, exactly right, Jeff. Thanks for that. Slide. Yep. Leadingforlife.co.uk. Okay. Figure and, four. Yeah. Here's figure this four. Picture too, Nick. You might want to just and, comment uh, on this one. 
There we go. Oh, yeah. And uh, another reason I always like Bob was he, he's a regular at uh, the um, remembrance ceremonies that we have in the UK. Uh, and uh, I think that's him uh, leading the veterans of uh, Six Squadron, if I'm not mistaken, certainly all RAF, on their march past the cenotaph uh, that we have on our Remembrance Day on the 11th of the 11th. So, uh, yeah, he's he's always been very good at that sort of thing and looking after people. He's, uh, he's a wonderful uh, person to speak to, very inspiring. Nicely polished shoes which is a mark of, a, <laughs> yes. of an excellent officer. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, check that out, folks. That. Life for, uh, leading for life, uh, numeral four in there, .co.uk. We're happy to promote it. Check it out. Subscribe and all that jazz. All right. Um, anything else, sir? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm done. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, Camacho. How have you been, sir? You've been pretty busy with the uh, the old job and doing a lot of traveling. I, I've, I've been yeah. seeing. Yeah, pretty busy. Um, I was in California. I'm trying to think when the last time I actually talked with you guys was, uh, but you know, I was in California for a couple of uh, for a couple of weeks, and then I was home for a week. Maybe it was when I was home for a week that we chatted, and then mm-hmm. uh, went to Oshkosh for half a week. Yeah. Um, and then and you did a home. nice report there from the Brown Arch, and yeah, uh, yeah, we played that on the last episode. Yep, so that was fun. This was I mentioned it last time, but this was my first uh, first time I took my son to Oshkosh. Um, it was also his first time uh, flying on the airlines. Uh, since my airplane is down right now, uh, we flew up to Milwaukee, and we're just going to rent a car and drive to Oshkosh. Um, so he's a little hesitant about the. It was a little hesitant about the. Uh, airline trip um but it was it's a pretty quick trip we go to chicago and then up to milwaukee uh, unfortunately we showed up at uh about seven in the morning for uh an eight o'clock or eight thirty flight and uh we got on our airplane and uh, actually they held us before boarding for about 15 minutes and said oh we're just trying to finish up some p- maintenance paperwork and then we'll get started boarding so we got started we boarded late uh, then we sat on the airplane at the gate for about an hour waiting for the maintenance paperwork to get sorted out. Uh, they got all that sorted out. And then um, we taxied out to the end of the runway and they put a ground stop in place in Chicago. So we sat at the end of the runway for an hour. Uh, then as we were getting ready to go at the end of the hour, they said they extended it an hour. So we went back to the gate, got off the airplane, wandered around the airport for another couple hours and uh, finally got on our way. Uh, we were supposed to be into Milwaukee at uh, noon, which would have put us into Oshkosh at about 1.30. We ended up landing in Milwaukee at uh, at about 5.30 and then uh, got our rental car and managed to just make it uh, to Oshkosh about 10 minutes before the night show started. So we got to see the night show, which is one of the things he wanted to see. Uh, got to see all the warbirds. Uh, he likes Mustangs and Corsairs, and there's an abundance of both of those. Um, and then do a number of the um, youth activities throughout the area. So uh, he had a lot of fun. It was really hot, and it was a lot of walking. So he, <laughs> yeah, it looked uh, like it was when I saw him a few times, um, especially on the the Boeing Plaza. Ramp. Yeah, he was looking pretty tuckered out. Yeah, yeah. So it was. Uh, I think it was probably about the right length the couple of days that we were there. Um, in retrospect, now that you've had uh, 
many, many days since that experience. Has he talked favorably about his uh, mm-hmm. trip to Oshkosh? Yep. Good. Yep. And, uh, you know, we got him a shirt, a Corsair shirt, and uh, he wanted to wear it on the flight home. And then he wanted to wash it when we got home because he wanted to wear it to church the next day. And then, um, so he's been pretty excited about it. He had a number of items that he uh, he built at the little kid venture area. So he's, uh, you know, he showed those to his mom and uh, his cousins. So he, I, I, I think he did have a lot of fun. And I think as we uh, prepare for the next time for him going, hopefully we get a little bit better and have a little more infrastructure to support him from getting worn out. Uh, and then this week, uh, I spent the last week down in Texas, spent the first couple of days in Dallas, and then I spent the second half of the week down in uh, Houston and Galveston, kind of going back and forth between Houston and Galveston, uh, doing a bunch of uh, work stuff, um, working on uh, some old jets, which was kind of fun. And we were actually, when we were in Houston, we were actually based out of a hangar that has that had... Uh, about nine or ten BAE Hawks. And so I had to send a shoot a quick note out to see if anybody was well versed in the Hawk enough to give me a ride. And uh, I was hoping Captain Captain Nick would uh, jump on a flight and come over to I would take have me loved around the patch. Loved, but, uh, I'd love to try that again. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was a, so it was one of the, it was a, aerospace firm that does uh, both testing and adversary training with the US government and they had uh, they had procured a uh, like I said about eight or nine or ten Hawks from the uh, Republic of Korea Air Force I guess when they were upgrading so it was neat to watch them operate also as we were doing our stuff cool and then uh, yeah got home last night late still trying to recover from a long week of work well, <laughs> yeah I bet you're tuckered out man. Yeah, we're really happy that you were able to join us uh, for this morning's recording, uh, Nick. All right, excellent. Jeff, what you been doing? What have I been doing? Okay, well, um, of course, um, I I do my thing and uh, did that last weekend, and I'm going to be doing that again uh, in just a few hours today and all pretty much most of the day tomorrow. Uh, But I, I was able to have a mini meetup with uh, one of our community members. Uh, his name is Harris Bergman, and uh, I've, I've seen him at several APG events, and I've also met up with him once or twice before uh, to have coffee, and we did that again at Starbucks. He said, you know, it's been a while. I, the last time I saw you was at the 500th episode, 80 episodes ago. And uh, so let's get some coffee again sometime soon. And I said, okay, how about, how about tomorrow? How about Friday? So uh, we met up and... Uh, Talked for about two and a half, three hours or so. It's amazing how quickly time passes when you're uh, engaged in really three hours. Uh, great that's what we do every conversation. Week. Yeah, this is what we do every week, right? <laughs> uh, engaging conversation for three hours, and it really does fly. Um, so it was very nice to uh, uh, meet up with you, Harris. Uh, it didn't record anything. It was more of a personal kind of uh, get together and visit. But it was nice to hear all the stuff happening in uh, his life. And uh, that's that's pretty much it for me. Uh, not what about too. Nick, busy. want to talk about last week's? Cover oh yeah, art? Nick, uh, would you like to talk about last week's cover art, which is uh, <laughs> yeah, interesting? Well, <laughs> you you gave me some interesting possible titles, uh, including uh, something Ram. to do with booty, 
Yeah, uh, a booty that was run fault. or a booty yeah. loop. Yep, booty loop. Uh, and I, I was, I thought, well, okay, I'll try and put some booty in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also had a stripper pole. Yeah, Tim Van uh, Ram suggested that. Yes, of course. exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, who else? Um, so I thought initially of putting a striped pole in, thinking, well, that'll be full, covered in strips. But in the end, I went with no, a, no. <laughs> a lady pole dancing her way out of an aircraft. Uh, in lieu of um, the normal uh, inflating slides mm-hmm. <laughs> that we escaped from. So I thought in the unlikely event of an evacuation, nice I was, uh, yeah, exactly right. So we got a bit of a stripper pole, a bit of booty, and a bit of uh, an evacuation in there. So um, it all comes together. For those who are the number hunters, um, I, I seem to be concentrating on little windows at the moment. So there's a little window in the door, and if you can, uh, if you zoom your your browser in to the, <laughs> the little window on the door. Okay, hang on. I hang think on. you'll find All right. that woman needs uh, better footwear on, though. Uh, yeah, Liz is concerned about this woman's footwear uh, in yeah, an emergency we, we evacuation. We did actually talk about people who walk around the air, aircraft in bare feet particularly going to use the facilities Mm -hmm. the bathroom Mm -hmm. uh, in bare feet paddling around um on everyone else's uh, drips so yeah not (laughs) ideal don't don't, everybody else's drips love that um yeah i don't see anything dripping off her feet which is good um i'm going to share the screen and that way i'll be able to um to uh go into a little bit more detail and so liz if you'll pop that into the uh into the screen um yeah would be my um here i'll do it oh you did already okay um and so now nick uh, please direct me to where i should go to near the lady's head uh you want to zoom in on the Little um, window Round the window. cabin crew used in the door to check to see if it's safe or not and to pass hand signals. Right here? Oh, look at that. Yeah. Oh, it almost looks like a reflection, uh, 579. Oh, uh, oh, there you go. You see that? Nice, Jan. You've got yeah. your yeah. cursor okay. in the middle of it, but it is indeed. Oh, there. I'm sorry. I didn't know you could see the cursor in there. Um, yeah. There you go. Um, 579, that was the number. And then, yeah. of course, um, let me move over here. Oh, no, that doesn't work. And there's um, a, much, a nice view of the pretty lady. Yes. And like there, of course, head. is uh, our <laughs> Acme logo. Very yeah. nice. Uh, and uh, what do you rate in the airplane is? I'm, I wasn't sure. Well, it's got to be some kind of a uh, of an Airbus because of the way the door pops out and slides back uh, on the fuselage. Uh, yeah, but I'm not sure what right. kind. Is it a narrow body, maybe a 320, 321, something like well, that? Well, it started off as a KLM aircraft before I messed around with the colors. Oh. But, uh, so I'm not sure what the, is in the K- KLM inventory. Mm-hmm. Could well be, you know, it looks Airbus-ish. Yeah, it does. Look like a narrow body Airbus from Okay, what let's I can do tell. some coffee fun. Okay, Hooray. so uh, now it yeah. is time to do a little bit of a coffee fund action and I press this button right here. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. 
I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah, the Coffee Fund, it's your way, dear listener, to take part in financially supporting us here at the APG. A couple different ways to do that. One is the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last episode, we have Mazus Kareem. Here comes, here comes, sorry. Uh, It's coming, it's coming. Caught Liz off guard. Yep. Uh, Here we go. Mazuz Karim used, uh, as he does every month, uh, another nice, generous donation from Mazuz, Dr. Karim. Thank you very much, sir. And the other way to uh, participate in the Coffee Bar Club or the Coffee Fund Cadre uh, is to become a patron of the show via Patreon.com. And we have a new producer. And that would be Chris Ott, who is my... Airbnb uh, extraordinaire host uh, up in New London, Wisconsin. That's where I stayed while I was up in uh, at Oshkosh you this year. And, uh, yeah, I should be paying him, Liz. You're right. Um, anyway, thank you, Chris, uh, for becoming a producer of the show. We really do appreciate that. Hey, if you want to do the same, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will, too. Hey, right before we get to our feedback segment today, I'd like to um, mention a couple of things. Um, what, and I think I briefly mentioned this on the last episode that uh, one of our community members kind of made the comment, and I think it was a, an astute comment, that uh, we are kind of getting away from you know, the mostly audio-only content, and we were getting more and more videos that we were playing on the on the program and kind of making this more of a a video kind of a show. And it's really not. This is just our platform to record the audio show. And, and I agreed with that um, that concern. And uh, so if you don't mind, and when you send in feedback, um, we, we prefer the kind of feedback that's more personal, you know, stories, questions, your aviation journey, that kind of thing. And maybe some questions you might have about something that you may have seen in the news, like an incident, accident, that kind of stuff. I'm not, we're, we're not saying that you... You absolutely cannot send us a video link, but uh, we want more than just you know sending us feedback with just a link to a video because I, I just think it's more want interesting. More about them. Uh, yeah, we want to hear more about you, about the community, because this is a very community-driven show. And uh, so, um, just wanted to throw that out there if you don't mind. And um, also, we've received a lot of feedback for uh, Miami Rick, and we've been kind of holding that back, waiting for him to join us on an episode. When that's going to be, I don't know. He's a very busy person, and we're hoping that we can uh, kind of have him uh, engaged with us uh, again sometime uh, in the future. But just wanted to let you know, if you send in feedback that's mostly aimed at uh, Miami Rick, uh, we and, and you're wondering why we haven't played it, is because we want Miami Rick to be here when we do. So, so. Um, that's, it's uh, not lost. It's the it's not lost. It's it just it's just it, it's loggering. It's pending. Yes, it's, it's loggering. Uh, so uh, and just I've been getting away with way too much Airbus stuff. So we I need Rick here to balance I'm it out. Challenged. I'm I'm surprised that absolutely uh, he hasn't yeah, come back. Obviously, free reign. Obviously, he's not listening to what's happening here. Uh, otherwise, he'd be outraged, <laughs> and he would make sure that he was there to defend the great Boeing. 
Anyway, so we just thought we'd uh, we kind of mention that, uh, kind of an administrative kind of thing. Um, okay. And so Number with four. that, I think it's time for us to uh, start the feedback segment. Captain, incoming message. All right, we're going to start with this one from Els Peloto. First off, don't worry, Nick. I'm not back for you this time. Wink, wink. Uh, I don't want you winking at me. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) He's kind of cute when he winks like that. Well, Uh, yeah. Swiftly moving on, listening to APG 573 covering the double go around of United Flight 1390. I was kind of surprised that there was no talk of fuel state from anyone. I often rock up to a sunny SFO with little extra to no fuel on top of the alternate fuel plus final reserve requirements, and I've never needed it there. However, in the event of an ATC-ordered go-around due to traffic, there is a good chance I would commit to SFO and drop my alternate, which often is Oakland, just on the other side of the bay. In this scenario, we would need most of that alternate fuel to be used while being woven back into the sequence, leaving us in a position of having to drink final reserve fuel in the event of another go-around, and then being required to declare a fuel emergency. For listeners who are not pilots, I'm sure this sounds a little unsafe. Uh, It is if not managed properly. In this situation, as soon as I made my decision to commit, I would certainly make sure to call minfuel, minimum fuel, to ensure Controllers are aware I will not be able to divert with the remaining fuel, and I can't be mucked around on the next approach, thus giving them a clear picture of my fuel state and a reason to build in extra fat on the next approach. I'm sure many are asking, why don't I just carry extra fuel? That's a nice idea, but burning uh, to I burn roughly four tons, 9,000 pounds, to bash out a go-around in San Francisco. But to get that fuel there, I need to take more fuel to carry it. And on a 15-plus hour flight, that works out to be three tons. If I have a reason, that's like three tons extra just to carry that roughly four tons or extra whatever. If I have a reason, I'll take it. But if there's no reason, then seven tons could mean a double whammy of offloading of paying passengers to take the fuel and the cost of that fuel burnt. Plus, en route, if the conditions change, I can make the call to do a technical stop along the way for more fuel. It is why we pilots get paid the big bucks. So, switching back to the flight in question. Do these guys have an actual fuel concern? And if so, why did they not speak up? If not, then just accept the SFO gets bloody busy and have a bit of empathy for the controllers, who at times have to push a lot of tin in and out of an airport where the geography, weather, dated runway-slash-taxiway layouts, and proximity to other Bay Area airports make this a very challenging job, which they nail it daily. I've done SFO and JFK tower visits, and as well as Tracon to get the controller's point of view. I strongly suggest others do the same. The experiences were enlightening for me and the controllers I met. Um... Let's see, I'm sure you guys can expand further on the extra or no extra fuel debate plus correct en route fuel management. All the best and be nice to your controllers. Else Piloto. Yeah, and uh, I'll just say something quickly before I'm sure we'll get some good uh, commentary from uh, from Nick uh, Anderson um, and perhaps Camacho as well. 
but um, this is more in the uh, airline world. Um, and I would assume, of course, it's always a dangerous thing to do, right? It's an uh, that uh, the flight in question, the United flight, um, didn't mention anything about their fuel state because apparently they it was okay. They didn't uh, have any concern about declaring minimum fuel or, you know, doing a couple of those, you know, in fact, some, uh, and this is a domestic flight uh, that we're talking about, I'm pretty sure, uh, landing there. So the requirements for fuel uh, reserves and that kind of thing are different. And uh, also um, a uh, clever dispatcher knowing, you know, where the uh, flight is going to be operating will um, not uncommonly add extra fuel to take that into account. So um, I would, again, assume that because there was no mention of their fuel state and um, they didn't declare a minimum fuel, that that wasn't yet uh, an issue. Now, if they had been sent around another time, then perhaps we would have heard uh, the uh, expression of uh, concern regarding uh, the fuel. Now, I'll give it to Captain Nick to uh, talk a little bit more about fuel considerations, especially for long uh, haul kind of flying like uh, El Spilato uh, does. Absolutely. And El Spilato is definitely a pilot after my own heart because uh, I because of the winking? I've always taken an interest <laughs> in, in uh, air traffic control and uh, how different places work differently you've you've really got to when you're going all around the world because they can vary dramatically um i've been a track on in uh, jfk um and uh i used to i uh, visited tower at heathrow and other places and i always uh, try and if i have a, a a problem i used to phone up you know the supervisor in whatever organization that uh, I I wanted to you know find out more about how they ran it. Washington was a place that used to confuse the devil out of me. Um, why they made such a hash of getting us onto finals uh, competently, um, but uh, I always got a good answer, and it was always worth passing on uh, our thoughts uh, and what our needs were after all we're the kind of customer and they're the one providing the service uh, and if we don't discuss the problems we have things will never change so that was my point of view and i always try to do it with a very um, understanding attitude so that we didn't put anyone's back up and we try to communicate so that we were both learn from the conversation blah blah Anyway, that was that was great. As regards fuel, yeah, in the old days, <laughs> we used to stick on a couple of tons for mum uh, for no other reason than uh, my bladder's feeling a bit tight today, so I just think I need a bit of extra fuel. Or uh, I, I, the last time I went there, we got messed about a bit, so I'll stick on a couple of extra. Those days are long gone. <laughs> the price of fuel means that, Everyone looks at fuel with a microscope. Uh, there are most airlines have got a fuel panel, and their you know primary uh, job is to, within the legal constraints of adhering to the requirements uh, for an airliner, um, try and pare down fuel uh, um, as much as possible. So all those little avenues that we sometimes had to uh, squeeze a bit extra out of. Um, the fuel allowance uh, have slowly been 
eroded over the years, which means um, you're often arriving with very little, considering you might have been airborne for 10 or 12 hours, with very little spare fuel. You might have, uh, for that whole distance, an extra ton or two um, to count uh, any route changes, uh, you know, for example, if you're just going across the Atlantic and you didn't fly the nat track you were expecting, that might be two tons right there, just because the nat tracks move 60 miles south or 60 miles north, uh, because the winds will be slightly less favorable and you'll just chew through that fuel. Uh, no problem at all. And then you don't have any route reserve at all when you arrive where you're getting uh, our company was good we they always assessed uh, the average holding time for every airfield we went to on your arrival time and give you automatically give you fuel to allow you to hold but that of course doesn't take into account um, what happens if you go around uh, so yeah you're right going around can be several tons uh, in a big airplane and if you don't have several tons in hand, then uh, life starts becoming a bit difficult. I was around. always you terribly reluctant gas. to give away my diversion fuel because even on an and we were allowed to, if you got you know a couple of runways that were both working, uh, you know you were allowed to say right, well I'll throw away my diversion because there are two runways available here. Um, but of course, occasionally you go to a single runway airport and you didn't have that option. And then you've either got to make the decision, am I going to divert now uh, because I don't have fuel to complete a go around and I need to ensure. But often you're diverting to an airfield that's less well equipped than the one you're at. At least the one you're at, you know where the what the weather is. So, yeah, I've made command decisions in the past uh, that I would chew, uh, I would use my diversion fuel and uh you know end up with just the bare minimum uh and uh, you're right the the calls we're allowed to make now to advise air traffic that uh, we have committed ourselves to an airport uh make things a bit safer uh they don't necessarily until you declare an emergency they don't give you necessarily any priority but they they at least the air traffickers there is a where, unless they change shift. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forgot to tell you. This guy <laughs> yeah, said minimum exactly fuel. Right. Oops. Yeah. Oh, boy. There we That place got no fuel. <laughs> and then you have to go, oh, is this a new controller? Perhaps I should say it again. But anyway, yeah. now I, I, I see entirely where, where you're coming from. Uh, and I'm also, you know, despite the fact that I love poking fun at air traffickers because they're an easy target, uh, I. I'm really with you in the job they have. And, and uh, San Francisco is a classic airport where they really have to be on the ball and they have a lot of restrictions. So, yeah, I think you've, uh, you've made some excellent points in your feedback, and I agree entirely. Hey, um, Nick, um, Els Palato mentioned um, the term uh, technical stop. Um, is, is that something you've ever done, or if so, does it happen very often? Or maybe you could tell us a little bit about a tech We stop. often used to, or went through a period, certainly, of planning to um, go to an airfield that was short of our destination, uh, and we have fuel to get there. But as we approached it, if we had 
sufficient fuel if we'd made a little fuel on the way and we could make our actual destination then we would carry on past it but very rarely we actually plan to go into a, a technical stop and take on extra fuel after all the passengers get really upset if they have bought what they think is a non-stop flight then you and you stop <laughs> Quite rightly, they go, what the hell's going on? We're supposed to be going direct, nonstop to Heathrow. Uh, and you just, you've just you just pulled into Shannon. So, uh, no, I'm not ideal to do that. And we didn't like doing it. The company certainly didn't like you doing that. So, um, And to be fair, uh, at 25 years and most of it as a captain, uh, I put on fuel many, many times. Not once did the company ever come back to me and say, you put on extra fuel. Can you justify that for me? They never did that. So I was never, so long as I felt, you know, in myself that it was a good decision, uh, I or, or I knew that the company would be behind me on that. Did you ever get pushback from the dispatcher? I'm assuming it's like our system where we would call our dispatcher and say, hey, just looking at the weather and the condition, I, I know, you know, the, the weather, well, even Super Fred Driver makes the comment from our live audience, almost never give away alternate uh, fuel, even when the weather's perfect. You never know when someone will blow a tire on landing and shut down the only runway can get uncomfortable very quickly. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's yeah. true. And, and, and my comment that that you needed two runways at your exactly before yeah, you, you i would do that, that. yeah uh, the the thing about um i think the kind of flying that uh super fred driver does in the military from what i recall and it may have changed uh, we didn't have dispatchers we did all our own flight planning fuel planning etc so that's the commander's decision as to you know whether to have that alternate fuel or not even if it's not technically required uh, but um, in our airline world, for most of us anyway, we work through uh, dispatch. And uh, so you're, you know, they're 50% uh, responsible for the operation of the flight. And so when they give you a proposed fuel load and you have concerns, um, at my experience at Acme, which is a wonderful airline, because I've never ever, I've always had really good discussions with dispatchers, but I've never had anybody push back and say, you know, no, refuse it. Uh, because if that ever happened, I think they know that we would say, well, okay, then I hope you can find another captain to fly this flight because I'm not going to unless you add the feeling. But it's, it never it has never gotten to that point with me uh, in my experience in over 30 years of flying in the Fred airlines. Fred has another comment there. Um, Super Fred Driver, again, in the audience, we have planners now, Jeff, but I still have discretion as to final fuel. have never been questioned. Perfect. That's the way to operate an airline or a military airline uh, is to, um, you know, have these discussions and, uh, you know, just um, make sure that you're yeah. operating safely. Um, After all, you're, you're the guy in the airplane. Exactly. The dispatcher is going to go home to his family regardless. Right. Um but if something happens on your flight, you're the one carrying the can. And I was going to make a point about here in the UK. No, we don't have dispatchers. We didn't have dispatchers as oh. such, as you understand them in the UK. We had a flight planner who drew up the, the plan and uh, would often the fuel on there would be would include their thoughts. You know, I'll, I'll, I've given you an extra three tons here because of weather, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, but we we didn't have the same system so it was absolutely down to the captain's um understanding authority uh as to how much fuel you carried in the end now regarding technical stops um 
on occasion, uh, the marketing department at Acme would want to operate the Mad Dog from uh, Atlanta to, let's say, Tucson, Arizona, which is kind of stretching the range of a, a MD-88. And uh, so a lot of times, uh, the time of year when the, you know, like October, November, December, when the winds are quite strong um, that time of year, uh, it was almost, um, it, was, it was always planned to potentially make a stop in El Paso, Texas, to take on some extra fuel so you could make the entire flight. But we always thought, well, heck, why don't you just use an airplane that has the legs to do this instead of slapping a, a mad dog on it? But uh, I've only had to do that maybe twice, uh, stop and get some extra fuel. And uh, But I'll tell you what, you really are monitoring your fuel burn very, very closely as you're making your way uh, toward uh, Arizona. And, uh, you know, deciding whether or not you have to, you know, pull the trigger on, uh, on, uh, making a stop for fuel. Okay. Why don't we cover another piece of feedback and, uh, let's see. Yeah. Let's do this from, um, Marcus. Um, hello crew. Thought I'd send in some feedback regarding Richard's story from APG 576. First of all, I'd like to say thank you to Richard as that is inspiring to hear for someone going through the process themselves, working, saving while studying and flying in your spare time can become overwhelming financially and mentally, as I'm sure every, uh, I'm sure everyone that is doing it knows. Hearing the struggles Richard encountered made me think about a situation I had recently experienced that I thought was going to be a big setback. My flight school entered administration without warning a few months back and left me out of pocket by just short of 5,000 pounds. While in the grand scheme of things, this isn't a massive chunk of the collective pot to pay for all your training. It is a lot of money to lose. I was gutted as I'm saving everything to go to America uh, doing my hours building and this would delay me another half a year or so. I'd received nothing in the way of communication from the administrators, so I had to look into getting my money back myself. After researching for solutions, I, uh, let's see, some solutions I going something called, okay, he ended up using something called a chargeback that is offered by the Royal Bank of Scotland. I'm not sure if this is offered by all banks in the UK. And after applying and waiting a few weeks, I managed to get the money back that would have been spent on the remaining hours I had left to fly. And I'm assuming uh, here, and this is Jeff um, interjecting. Um, I, I'm, I know that in in the U.S. at least with credit cards, um, and not, not debit cards, but credit cards, um, most uh, banks uh, that um, offer these will have a... Uh, a way to charge back a charge that was put on your credit account um, if it's warranted. You know, yeah, it legit. has to be a reasonable legit. thing. Uh, legit, yeah. So um, I'm, maybe that's what he's talking about here. Maybe he charged it to a credit card or something like that and uh, was able to charge it back. Um, okay, continuing with Marcus's um, feedback, I thought I'd share this as I know another two schools have entered the same situation as my school did in the UK and thought there may be people out there who had lost money and not heard of this. Uh, it was actually my dad who found the service online and I couldn't believe it had worked. I believe as long as you paid using a debit card, 
there is a variety of situations you can claim for if you have lost money for reasons out of your control. Okay, I should have read a little bit further. So he used a debit card. That's one of those things that I'm not sure we can no. do a chargeback with a we debit card here. here in the U.S. And credit. I don't think Canada, yeah, the same thing that Liz was saying. Uh, if people do know more, feel free to pass on my email. And if Richard is willing to divulge more of his story around how he paid and worked through his commercial license, I would hugely appreciate it. Okay, Richard, if you're listening, Marcus wants to know how you uh, paid and worked through your uh, commercial license. Many thanks for all you guys do for everything you do as it helps us more than you know. Sorry for another long feedback. No, we love long feedback, Marcus. Many thanks, Marcus in the UK. And I'm glad you got your money back. Um, 5,000 pounds, yeah, you say. It's not a heck of a lot in the grand scheme of things. But hey, that's a lot of money. You know, you don't want it. There's nothing to sneeze Absolutely. Yeah, paying up front for flying is, you know, it it, it is a risk. Because not every flying school is going to still be there at the end. All right, I was communicating with the uh, control room and uh, wanted to make sure we were all on the same page as far as uh, playing our plane tale for this episode. And it uh, looks like everything is ready to go. So without further ado, it is now time for the Old Pilot's Plane Tale this week's episode title, RAF Form 414, Volume 23. Take it away, Old Pilot. <laughs> The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 23. I left you last time after we had returned with our hornets from New Zealand, having had a very productive and interesting few weeks working with the Kiwi A4 Skyhawks. We soon settled back into our squadron headquarters at RAAF Williamtown, and started to work up some maritime strike tactics against the ships of the Australian Navy. These were early days for the Australian Hornets, and the anti-ship missiles that were to be purchased had yet to be properly integrated into the aircraft's weapons system. As such, we couldn't fully program the weapon to attack a specific target, so we simulated launching the sea-skimming missiles in a reversionary boresight mode. This meant that, once it had armed itself, the missile would tootle happily along and lock onto the first target it saw. As such, we aimed it at a capital ship and tried to avoid accidentally engaging the picket ships that encircled the more valuable vessels in the fleet that they were defending. Finding the fleet was always a challenge, but we left that up to our AP-3 Orion brethren who would quarter the seas until they detected a few suitable Jolly Jack tars drifting around the Tasman Sea in their scruffy scowls hiding behind the seagulls that followed their flotsam and gash. Once identified, the Orion would start broadcasting at timed intervals on HF, a coded briefing with all the information we needed to coordinate an attack. The P-3 had its own anti-ship missiles, but the idea was to simultaneously attack the same targets at the same moment to saturate their defences so that a few missiles would get through and send some to the bottom. 
for us, it meant writing down and decoding all the information from the broadcast, which included details like latitudes and longitudes, the disposition of the fleet, attack directions and timings, etc. Then we had to type that all into our nav kit, and the leader of the formation, usually a four-ship, had to get us to the start point at the right time and speed and juggle the attack heading to avoid any lesser targets that were in the way. Once running in, we would ease up a little to make contact with our own radars and refine the numbers before getting down onto the waves again. Then it was just a matter of getting to the correct launch range and popping off our imaginary missile. However, things were never quite that easy because we were doing this at low level and at night with just a radar altimeter to stop us from becoming fish bait. Whilst the leader had to do a lot of scribbling, mental arithmetic and typing, the rest of the formation had to stay in a visual battle formation on him as they did more or less the same as well as searching the skies for fighters all in the disorientating pitch black of absolute darkness, whilst hand-flying the aircraft at eight miles a minute. At that heightened speed, it would take a fraction of a second to slip down into the inky black ocean. After a few of these missions, we started using the two-seaters as a lead aircraft, so that someone in the back could do all the paperwork, a considerably safer option. It was, as we were working up these tactics, that I had a few diversions from the usual missions. There was going to be a fly-past of some stadium in the town of Newcastle in celebration of some Antipodean occasion, and we were providing a foreship with me at the front. The briefing was all about the minimum height and maximum speed, and that was about it. We had a guy on the ground to spy out the situation, and apparently there was a roof dais for the dignitaries, so I decided to fly over the edge of the arena in front of them, rather than the middle, where their view would be obstructed by the cover. Sadly, there was some confusion as to which way the bigwigs were all facing, and we went behind them, not in front. So that was the last one of those I was given. We also did some fighter affiliation, with a few transports like the C-130 Hercules and the venerable de Havilland DHC-4 Caribou. It would have been too easy to engage them with long-range sparrows, so we restricted ourselves to sidewinders and guns. The heavies had their ramps down with people watching out of the back and the other crew members positioned at windows all round the aircraft. With so many eyeballs searching the skies, it was hard to creep up on them, and as soon as we were spotted, they would turn into us to hide their IR hotspots and make gun attacks a difficult option. Still, it was all good fun, and I got a ride in the back of a caribou to see it from their side. I also became qualified to fly air tests to check out various post-maintenance issues, particularly engine air tests. This involved climbing to altitude to shut down and relight the motors at the edge of the envelope to ensure that they worked as advertised. 
The only ones that caused me a little concern were the double-engine air tests, as I was convinced that one day, amongst the myriad of shutdowns and relights, shutdowns and relights, left and right, left and right, that I would get confused and end up with both shut down at the same time. Over the years, I flew a bunch of such sorties, one of which had me being recalled from leave to fly, with the understanding that I was allowed to do so without shaving my beard that I always grew when not at work. Beards were usually completely verboten, so the squadron got the base photographer to record the event for posterity. Then the exercise season was upon us again and we deployed up to Darwin for exercise pitch black. We were joined by American B-52s, A-6s, EA-6s, F-15s and RAAF F-111s and Mirages from the last remaining Mirage Squadron, number 75. We did plenty of combat in the workup phase, particularly against the Eagles, who always gave us a run for our money, but I also took a pair of Hornets against four Mirages. Well, that would have been fair, but my wingman broke his aircraft, so I ended up in a 1v4. I can't quite remember how the engagements went, but I expect that I came back with some shrapnel damage. Pitch Black lived up to its name and we spent a lot of time in the dark ranging out over the Timor Sea in defence of Australia looking for Red Air, who rarely seemed to be there but when they did arrive they attacked in overwhelming force. It was immediately after my return to Williamtown that I did my back-in during a 2v1 combat sortie. The Hornet's seat was right back at a slight angle, which meant that when you wanted to look back between the fins to check your six, you had to lean forward against the pull of the straps and then twist around. I joined a growing list of guys who had damaged their lower backs doing this under high G-loads. The base medical centre had physiotherapists to treat these problems, but it was something that would trouble me forevermore. In 1971, the Australians had joined a series of agreements known as the Five Powers Defence Arrangements. The five nations involved were all members of the Commonwealth and once belonged to the British Empire. The FPDA provided defence cooperation between the countries by establishing an integrated air defence system for the Malayan Peninsula and Singapore, based at the Royal Malaysian Air Force Base Butterworth, in the northwest, on the coast near the island of Penang. The base hosted detachments of aircraft from the Five Powers and the Australians maintained a constant presence, deploying aircraft for six weeks or more at a time. These deployments were also timed to coincide with major exercises that involved the Five Powers and other friendly nations, such as Exercise Lima Basatu, Five United. On the 23rd of August 1988, I climbed into a 21-20 as part of a six-ship formation bound for Bali via Darwin. A province of Indonesia and east of Java, Bali appeals to all who visit through its sheer natural beauty of looming volcanoes and lush terraced rice fields that apparently exude peace and serenity. 
Sadly, Bali's Ngura High Airport didn't quite live up to that, but we didn't stay long before carrying on north up the Malayan Peninsula to Butterworth. Built just before the Second World War, the base was initially an RAF airfield that was transferred to the Australian Air Force in 1958, and following Malaysian independence in 1970, control was passed on to the Royal Malaysian Air Force, although the Australians remained co-tenants. My first impressions of Malaysia was of a country mostly covered in dense evergreen rainforest, often swamp-like near the coasts, but which climbed up into mountainous forests in the higher areas. We arrived towards the end of the southwest monsoon, with high temperatures, humidity and rainfall, particularly from the huge thunderstorms that regularly built in the afternoons, releasing torrential downpours that temporarily flooded the ground. With an average annual rainfall of 2.5 metres, the wettest region of Malaysia receives a stunning 5 metres of rain a year. That's 16.5 feet of water. After finding our rooms in the rather quaint old RAF mess, with an anteroom that jutted out towards a beach, full of overstuffed chairs and wooden walls that could be completely removed to allow a soft breeze to pass through on those hot, humid afternoons when we came in for tiffin. After a quick flight to look around the local area and pop into our main diversions of Kwantan and Kuala Lumpur, We took on the local Malaysian Air Force guys in their A4s and F5s, plus some Singaporean F5s, before practicing some mixed fighter force tactics. This was an RAF procedure that was developed to allow less sophisticated fighters to formate on more advanced machines and follow them into a merge with enemy aircraft. Once visual with the enemy, they could then independently turn and engage those bandits that were still alive. In this way, we could lead the A4s, F5s and even venerable hawker hunters from regional friendly forces to the enemy. During our time there, working up with the local air forces, the RAF arrived with a beautiful Vickers KC-10 tanker and four of the new Tornado F-3 air defence variant of the successful Tornado GR-1 ground attack aircraft. All of a sudden, the bars were full of old RAF friends from 29 Squadron who had been co-opted to take part in what was in reality a round-the-world sales drive by British Aerospace for this new fighter aircraft. I was, of course, very interested to know a little about this new machine that had taken over from my beloved Phantom, but was surprised how reticent they were to sing its praises, and particularly reluctant to pit it against our hornets. Eventually, one of our junior pilots managed to tempt a tornado pilot into a little turning and burning, and within a very short time, he had delivered a knockout blow with some very convincing gun camera film of the F-3, wings forward, out of energy and out of ideas. From my point of view, the deployment was a great success, and not just for the flying. 
a quick ferry ride across from the base to Penang Island, and a whole plethora of wonderful bars and restaurants opened up to us, which we often attacked in the form of a traps run. From the ferry terminal we would pair up and grab a trishaw, a rickety pedal-powered two-man transport, which we hired for the night. Then, with the first bar named, we would begin a race across town between a dozen or so trishaws, with the occupants urging on the drivers with promises of big tips and shouted encouragement of Jalan Jalan, which I subsequently discovered means road or street. But somehow it had the effect of speeding up the skinny, grinning men who peddled us, chewing their cat leaves and ringing little bells that created some kind of force field to protect us from the other mad drivers as we wove through the traffic. Some of the slowest even threw their drivers into the back and peddled the treacherous, unstable machines themselves. The first to arrive at the bar sprinted in and ordered a round of his choice of drinks for us all, whilst the last to arrive had to pay for them. We slammed those down, flirted with the pretty bar girls, and then it was off to the next of the traps, whilst doing our best to escape from the ladies of the night, and particularly the shims, a portmanteau of she and him. The final trap of the night was inevitably the Hong Kong bar in Chulia Street. A favourite of military units for over 70 years, it was a home from home and sported genuine memorabilia from the thousands of servicemen who drank their ice-cold beer there decade after decade. When closing time came, one of the bar girls would gather together what remained of the clientele for a photo that would go into the innumerable albums that adorned the bar so that the next time you visited you could remind yourself who was still amongst the walking wounded at the end of a traps run. One particular memory of that detachment that sticks in my mind was on my 34th birthday which I celebrated whilst being out there. We were drifting home from near the Singapore border at the end of the day's operation. We had said goodbye to the hunters who had been on our wings and were now heading back to Changi Air Base, and our KC-10 had topped us up at Endex, so we climbed to 50,000 feet over the growing thunderstorms and turned towards Butterworth. As we drifted over the huge, bubbling Q-Nims, we watched the tornadoes 20,000 feet below trying to weave their way around the dark, dangerous clouds as they massed across their path. And I thought again what a wonderful aircraft the Hornet was. We were chatting to a civilian air traffic unit when a voice broke through to me, deep and sonorous. Nuke, it said. This is God on guard. Happy birthday. One of my friends, an Aussie fighter controller, who had been working us that afternoon and guiding us onto the enemy raids, had cheekily accessed the military UHF emergency frequency that we all listened out on to pass a birthday greeting. All too quickly, our six weeks were up and we pointed our hornets back towards home to restart the usual routine 
of weapons practice, strike missions, air combat, close air support, maritime strike, fleet support, and all the rest. In the meantime, Christmas came and went. We learned to scuba dive, and Jilly discovered she was pregnant again. And my world started spinning. No, really spinning. Walking round the house at night in the dark, I found myself bumping into walls because I couldn't walk straight, even when I was sober. Bending over or turning around, I felt dizzy for a moment, but as soon as I straightened up, I felt fine. In all other things, I was on top of the world, but then I was climbing into a jet for a 2v2 combat mission. I was standing on the aircraft seat, doing my ejector seat checks, and when I finished, I turned around to face forwards and sat down. For a gut-wrenching moment, the airfield span around me for two complete revolutions before it settled down, with me hanging onto the canopy rails for grim death. I couldn't deny it anymore, and the realisation that my flying career might have ended hit home. I had vertigo. Vertigo, not good for a pilot. I, I discovered that for combat pilots, it's a positive advantage. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? <laughs> well, I went on and flew that mission. It was only afterwards that I got home. I thought hey, that was probably a silly thing to do. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. And I'm yeah, sure that's the no, only just... silly thing that you've ever done. <laughs> Well, I've got a few more. Yeah. But yeah, uh, that brings back great memories. That I, I did love Malaysia. I love the, the Malaysian people, very generous people, um, wonderful country. Mm -hmm. um, and we did have a ball uh, there, no doubt about it. Little disappointed I am that uh, you didn't have any uh, photos of the bar girls there. Um, well, yeah. Well, don't forget Julie kind of watches every time oh okay <laughs> well okay wink wink we'll go ahead and uh, yeah. review this in the future yeah so much best we don't do that okay. i'll send you some in on the qt thank you that? thank you yes no trouble <laughs> all right um that was great and as i've always said i really enjoy uh the uh, raf form 414s uh, whatever volume one through 23 now wow that's amazing uh, th thank you jeff i uh, i'm spending some time on the hornet because it was the the three years the best three years i did in the military so uh, um yeah uh, there aren't many more to go and then i'm afraid i'm gonna get onto the tornado oh, dear. Mm. well let's mm. do uh yeah can't wait to hear about that um <laughs> let's see the uh why don't we do uh another uh live feedback well live so and then we can do uh the one that steph and i uh, covered last night so number six this is from sam dawson uh let's see um sorry i missed the london meetup unfortunately my flight was so delayed due to weather and maintenance that combined with an early that combined with an early show the next day if I'd traveled from my hotel for the meetup, I would have done the Clark Griswold nod of the head and turned around to head back. In episode 577, someone asked about flying with your spouse. A tale about that. 
My wife and I met as lieutenants in the U.S. Army in Korea. I was a pilot, she a quartermaster officer. After our return to the U.S., we continued to date, and after she served in the Gulf War, we got married. At the same time, she was accepted to flight school, where, it so happened, I was an instructor pilot, an IP, in the UH-60 <laughs> helicopter qualification <laughs> course. Recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah. During the, uh, during the instrument phase of her training, I thought it would be a great idea to sneak my wife into the simulator for some extra instruction. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I set my wife up in the simulator and soon had my pointer out giving corrections. Well, oh, really? What do you mean? Is that a like a uh, euphemism or is we, that we, a... we call it suggestions when you're married. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so he had his pointer out giving corrections. A, a tap on her attitude indicator. Watch your pitch. A tap on the VSI. Keep your VSI in the scan. Then another tap. Keep the scan going. One, two, one, two. Always back to the attitude indicator. This did not go on very long before my wife had enough of it. Reached down and hit the red freeze button. Gave me a sweet smile and said in her southern drawl, Oh, bless your heart, hon. You have two choices. You can either put that pointer away or I'm going to shove it so far up your rear end it pokes out your nose. <laughs> Sweet. For those uh, not from the U.S., bless your heart is a Southern girl phrase that does not convey genuine sympathy at all. Yeah, I learned that as well. I, I was married to a Southern belle. I was, I was just always amazed at how she could say anything she wanted to about anyone as long as she said, bless their heart. It sounded like it was a nice thing. Uh, she then reached down, took the simulator off freeze and started flying again. I folded up the pointer and put it away. <laughs> yeah, that smart was uh, smart. A little over a year later, my wife was back in Korea, this time as a UH-1 pilot. I was still an instructor at the schoolhouse, but was able to finagle a temporary duty trip to Korea. While there, she had a flight, and I asked uh, if I, well, let's say, asked her if I would, if I could go along, or if she'd like me to go along. Let me read that sentence again. I think I'm screwing something up here. While there, she had a flight and asked if I would like to go along. Oh, no, he said it just perfectly. Uh, I jumped at the opportunity. The UH-1 is a single pilot aircraft with two pilot positions, so I assumed I would fly in the co-pilot position and put my flying kit there while I waited for her. She came out, and while doing her pre-flight, noticed my kit in the other pilot seat and asked, What's this? I responded that I assumed I would get to fly in the other pilot seat. She responded, no, I don't think that's a good idea. You're flying in the back, and my crew chief will sit there. <laughs> she also made it clear that backseat flying would not be welcome. <laughs> okay. My wife was a great pilot. Her helo pad in Korea was by a swamp, and on one occasion she experienced a compressor stall at about 100 feet and had to do a 180-degree auto rotation back to the landing pad. Later, she was one of the first females to fly the OH-58D scout-slash-attack helicopter and was the first female to command an OH-58D troop. As a major, she walked away from flying and became a military doctor-slash-orthopedic surgeon. Wow. And yes, we're still married. Well, good for you, Sam. Wow. Found a good one. Keep the sunny side up and the dirty side down, Sam. Wow. Oh, absolutely. What a, what a high achiever. Yeah, um, what a lucky man you are, Sam. Makes you wonder Holy. why she chose to marry this guy. You know. Well, yeah, that thought crossed my mind as well. 
Just kidding, Sam. I'm sure you're a great guy. I'm sure. Um, yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty amazing. Yeah. What, what's what's this doing up? What's this stuff up here? No, you're not sitting there. You're sitting in the back, and no back seat <laughs> yeah. flying. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Yeah, me too. Excellent. Oh, look, Jen Niffers in our uh, live yeah. audience. Hello, Jen. Nice Welcome. You, Jen. Uh, Tales from the Terminal, uh, her blog. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, no, Steffi was uh, oh, yeah. covering something here. Yeah, let's uh, go ahead and resume our pre-recorded um, recording. Segment. <laughs> uh, from segment, thank you, from last night. And uh, Steph and I cover another piece of feedback. So here we go. Let's, fingers crossed, see how this works. Yeah, Always ahead. striving for that okay. happy ending. Here we go. Where is it? Hey, it's getting to oh. know us time. Time of the show. I forgot. Oh, we never did yeah, stuff getting to know that. us when we did the getting uh, you know to know what? us. Just put it in. Uh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna play it and then I'll oh. I'll get it all in the right order when we do the oh, okay. when I do the audio. Right. Where we get to find out what everybody's been up to. And uh, Steph, let's start with you. All right. Well, what have I been up to? Actually, I was on the show the previous week, at least for part of it, right? So I don't. So you're have... doing nothing between last show and. No, show? I did a lot of things. Oh, okay. Um, I was uh, supposed to have been flying last weekend. Um, however, uh, our airplane came up against his hundred-hour maintenance, um, so it was unavailable to be flown for the weekend, um, and we ended up bringing in a another uh, caravan uh, basically identical to ours but um, came with its own pilot for the moment even though we're going to be leasing it on a more regular basis um, so that pilot flew it for the the weekend um, I did go out uh, to the drop zone just to because um, he, he had not flown at our drop zone before and uh, we have some kind of special considerations with our letter of agreement with um, you know, local airspace and Charlotte air traffic control. So just to make sure he was up to speed on that, rode for a few loads uh, with that pilot and then did a couple of skydives myself for the day. Um, so that was a nice but unexpected break. Um, but then the owner of that aircraft, even though it's identical to ours, he, he does his own um, checkouts with pilots um, before allowing us to fly the airplane. So he came up this week. And myself and our chief pilot uh, got checked out on his caravan. So ours is uh, still not back from maintenance. Um, So it wasn't my weekend to fly this weekend, but because I'm the only weekend pilot now currently checked out on the airplane that will be available, I will be, um, I'll be flying this weekend, which is why we're doing kind of a separate thing here. If depending on how seamless things have been transitioned together. But folks will notice that I'm not joining in with the other, the rest of the crew here when you guys do your recording tomorrow. So. They would not have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeff has to, Jeff has to show up exactly the same background, the same shirt, no the problem. same everything. I've been wearing yep. the same shirt for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it looks like a nice weekend for flying. It's going to be hot. Uh, they're talking about like heat index, like over a hundred on Sunday. Yikes. So um, I won't mind being at altitude for most of that time because it stays pretty cool up there. Excellent. So, um, other than that, just the usual, you know, nine to five. Well, my job's not nine to five. We'll call it seven thirty to four thirty craziness of, of my day job. It's been busy. Yeah, it's been been busy uh, doing the backstabbing thing. Mm-hmm. So, 
And no marathons or? Actually, coming up. So we're we're about to turn the corner into fall, even though it's going to be ridiculously hot this weekend. So fall is marathon season. A couple weeks out from big marathons, Berlin, Chicago, um, some other stuff in the fall. But next weekend, I'm actually, um, I entered the lottery for the Falmouth uh, Road Race, which is a seven-mile race up in Cape Cape Cod kind of has a long history it's an odd distance um just runs through town every august and i got got in through the lottery so i'm gonna go up for the weekend and do that a little different so that's that's my weekend clam clam chowder i'll get some has some lobster some lobster 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 roll (laughs) visit with the can't have now with the kennedys out to martha's vineyard and uh i don't know nice yeah i've never i've actually never been out to cape cod so i'm looking forward to seeing it i never have either Speaking of speaking of Boston, which we were talking about in the news, gonna fly mm-hmm. up to Boston next weekend. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no rogue <laughs> business jets uh, with <laughs> taking off. So. All right. Yeah, yeah, that Excellent. should be good. Yeah. Okay. Well, sweet. I hope you have uh, your weekend of uh, flying goes well, and um, I'm sure you'll update us on that the next time you're on with us. Absolutely. Which, which should be sometime yeah. next week. Hopefully. hopefully, sometime next week. Okay. Let's do this from D. Barry, advice requested. He says, hello to everyone from APG Crew. First of all, I do apologize in advance for the fake-looking email address. I I don't even know what the email address is that he used. But as you all know, the aviation industry has a very small community, particularly where I'm from. So for my company's sake, I'm choosing to mask my identity and avoid specifics. I must admit, I'm not a longtime listener of the show. Okay. Do we really want to cover this then? Okay. No. We'll 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 allow it. Okay. It's a good question. It's a good. It's a a good uh, topic for discussion too. Okay. Uh, He says, as I only started listening a few months ago, but you got to start sometime, you know. Mm Uh, but I keep finding myself coming back for more and looking out for new episodes. Oh Uh no! You know what he's. You know what he's got. It's the start. Yeah, uh, the syndrome. If you're not familiar with the syndrome, it's. I don't see how quickly I can find it. APG syndrome. APG syndrome. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. I um, where were we? Uh, we were talking about. I keep finding um, myself coming back for more and looking at oh, new looking episodes. for new episodes. I like hearing what the crew have to say about the latest topics in aviation, and I believe the airline pilot guys and girls could help me with a hurdle that I'm currently facing in my flying career. A quick briefing on me for a bit of context: I've been flying professionally for almost a decade now, eight years of which as an instructor. For the last two years, I switched to passenger transport operations, initially involving a small charter company flying the Cessna 441 Conquest II, and recently Classic Dash 8s with a small regional airline. Interestingly, said small regional airline offered me a direct captain position. Wow. To which, of course, I accepted. The hurdle I'm facing now is that offers almost was almost a year ago, and I'm still an F.O., The reason being is that I didn't progress well through the command upgrade sims and subsequently failed the ATPL flight test. After a bit of time in the left seat to gain some experience on the dash. In the right seat. I'm sorry. 
Uh, that makes a difference. After a bit of time in the right seat to gain some experience on the dash and in a multi-crew environment, I was given some more command upgrade training and, again, did not progress well. Now I'm in sort of a holding pattern until a decision is made about my future training. I feel the issue is more to do with me and not the company or its training. I am at a stage where I am comfortable operating the aircraft in a multi-crew environment under normal circumstances, but when it comes to abnormal situations, I feel my processes aren't robust enough to manage the flight effectively. Now, when I say abnormal situations, I don't mean a straight-up engine failure or a failure of a major system, because let's be honest, those failures or these failures are well-rehearsed scenarios that don't require much lateral thinking other than let's get it on the ground sooner rather than later. And how is the subsequent landing going to be affected? What if I'm struggling with uh, in my command training? What I'm struggling with in my command training is dealing with relatively insignificant issues that, if mishandled at the early stages of noticing the problem, can snowball into a bigger problem. What I'm seeking is some advice as to what thought processes or processes, uh, what do you prefer? uh, Processes. Processes. You guys and gals go through when dealing with these types of abnormalities and what you find works best given your vast pool of experience. I'm aware of T-D-O-D-A-R-A-G-R-A-D-E and the like for decision-making models. He knows a lot more about decision-making models than I do because I don't know what any of that means. I had to look them up. T-D-O-D-A-R is time, diagnosis, options, decide, act, assign, and review. And uh, I couldn't find A-G-R-A-D-E, but just grade is Mm -hmm. gather information, review information, analyze, decide on a course of action, and evaluate the course of action. Okay. So just, you know, ways to kind of structure approaching a problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, But he says, I don't find, I don't seem to find these intuitive. Yeah, I... I understand that. I wouldn't either. I have dealt with insidious failures in the past as pilot in command of a single pilot aircraft, but with the intricate layering of potential issues that comes with operating a small regional airliner, my mind goes blank and I make mistakes that cause me to keep asking myself, why the heck did you do that? (laughs) I would greatly appreciate any wisdom and once again, love what you guys and girls do. Kind regards, DeBerry. DeBerry. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll just start mm-hmm. quickly uh, by saying that uh, that's one of our human um, characteristics and maybe human failures is when we do something wrong in questioning ourselves, especially I think that's a characteristic of pilots in general. We are very particular about things and uh, no snide comments from you, Liz. Um, but, uh, you know, attention to detail and, you know, persnickety, self-critical, very self-critical. In fact, you know, I, and I've talked about this many, many times on the show, how I just absolutely hate even the thought of having to go to the simulator. Not that I think that I'm not going to make it through whatever simulator training I'm going to go through, uh, and whatever assessment that I'm going to be given. It's more about my own, uh, critical uh, look at my own skills. And especially when we make a mistake, it is really, even though, you know, the instructor will say, Hey, don't worry about it. Shake it off, you know, move on. Don't, you know, completely forget about that. Well, that's easy to say, but hard to do. And so I just wanted to 
mentioned that. We all do that. And and it's really, really difficult to kind of just say, clear the mind. Although when you get to be my age, it's much easier to clear your mind. Because <laughs> there's really not, not much I'm gonna, going to I'm going to not make a comment about that. <laughs> well, sure. But Liz did. So, I know. you know, yeah. she took care of it. Yeah. All right. So, um, and she should know. Right, Liz? <laughs> right, okay. yeah. Um, anyway, so what do you think, Steph? Do you have any uh, advice for D? No, I think I think you're spot on, and you know we alluded to this a little bit in um, getting to know us. I was uh, in a similar situation this week, so being checked out on an aircraft that is really, for all intents and purposes, with minor differences, identical to one that I fly a lot. Oh, uh, you know, I don't have a ton of hours overall, but for the work that the amount of flying that I do, I've got a fair amount of experience in this airplane. Um, but, you know, doing a, a checkout basically with someone who, you know, is, is very particular about the way that their aircraft is flown and wanting to live up to their expectations and not wanting to make mistakes. And if you do make a mistake, that's the only thing that's sticking in the front of your mind, not the next task at hand. It gets very difficult to move on from those things. Um, and that's something that you have to you have to put yourself in that environment over and over and over again to realize that that's that's a normal thing that we all go through. Um, you know, it's it's very easy in a high pressure environment when you're being observed, when you're being tested or graded um, that. It does. You can know all of the answers on any given day. If someone asks you, it would just roll right off your tongue. But in that high pressure environment, it's very easy to overthink it, especially for those of us who are a bit type A and want to, and who are perfectionists and want to make sure that we give the most correct answer. Um, and you kind of get yourself into this point where it's it, you just get into this brain lock or brain fart, and you can't come up with the right answer. But the more you do that, the more you put yourself in that situation and the more you practice going through it, um, it gets easier and it gets easier to move on from when you do make a small mistake, you realize, hey, I need to keep going forward because in the real world, you know, if, if something like that does occur where there's a, you know, you talked about uh, small abnormalities snowballing and becoming bigger things, um, you know, we talk about these types of, uh, if it's an actual incident, all the time. You have the Swiss cheese model where things start to line up, mm -mm -mm. Um, you know, and that, funions. oh, Funyuns, so I'm sorry, let's do Funyuns. Sure <laughs> you have the Funyuns and they start to line up. Well, okay, so you have that first Funyun and that, that one gets missed. You have to be able to move on from that and recognize the next one's coming up and figure out how to mitigate those problems so that it doesn't become the, the big snowball problem. Um, you know, I think in terms of trying to, we're all different in how we process information. If you have some sort of acronym for how to work your way through a threat or a problem or a scenario, the acronyms that you gave are are good examples of how thought process can occur. But sometimes it's easy to get focused on what was the next letter in my acronym for how I'm supposed to deal with this instead of just thinking through the problem. You know, mm -hmm. I wouldn't worry too much about that. The more you practice working through problems, the more you're going to have that natural flow of how you're going to move from point A to point B to point C. Um, we do that a lot in medicine. A lot of it is repetition. A lot of it is practice. A lot of it is 
trying to hone some of those critical thinking skills, a lot of it comes down to just being very familiar with the aircraft that you're flying, the systems, and then your company process or procedures. Um, so the more familiar you can be with those, and it sounds like you are, um, and then just trust the knowledge that you have, you know, um, I don't know if that's super helpful, but I think a lot of it is just repetition practice and not, and, and getting to the point where you're not being so uh, inwardly critical that it's hard to move on from that, from an initial mistake, because everybody does that. Something that I, and great, great advice, Steph, all that was just hundred percent. Um, I just like saying that. Um, the uh, the thing that I always brief the people, well, not always, I, I try to remember to brief this, is that um, I don't sweat the small stuff and almost everything is small stuff. Mm-hmm. There are only a few things, and you just talked about it in your feedback to us, you don't have a problem with the big things, engine failures, fires, all these things that you've already gone through several times. You have very well um, written checklists to deal with that kind of thing. The, the, the hardest part, I think, is to find, it, it, once you identify that this is not a big thing, just kind of stop, think about it. As uh, what would uh, Nick's father say? Uh, wind the watch. Get a cigarette out and line, oh, line yeah, up the cigarette yeah. or something like that. Or wind the watch is another term that I've heard, you know, kind of take a couple of steps back and say, okay, what is happening here? Is this a big deal? No. Okay, let's figure out what's happening. Instead of like trying to get, sometimes we have this feeling that the uh, evaluator is is looking for us to make like an immediate action to take care of it like immediately, which is not really what they're looking for you to do. They're no. looking for you to go, hmm, okay, why is it doing that? Let's think about this. Mm-hmm. And once you've taken a little bit of time to think about it and engage your, as you said, you're more used to this pilot in command, single pilot kind of operation and being with another person, make sure that you use the other person as a resource. Do not be afraid to ask them, hey, what do you think? What's going on here? What do you think we should do? What kind of checklist? You know, and I think that most of us will go, I'm not going to say that because it's going to look like I don't really know what's going on <laughs> and what I'm supposed to do. But no, that's actually a good thing. That's good CRM. You're bringing in your resources and you're yeah. the one that's going to make that final decision as to what you do. There's a, there's always, I'm always surprised at the amount of like uh, just parallels between my day job in medicine and aviation. But, you know, in an environment where say you're in a procedure or operating room or something along those lines, uh, there's very much a no fault system at play where you can ask questions of anybody, no matter what their uh, rank is around you. So everyone's considered a resource, right? You know, if something is unsure, if you need to ask the question, if if you want uh, someone to back you up on something or make sure that what you're doing is correct, ask for that help. It's, it's a resource. Use all the resources yep. you have at your disposal. And you're going to, believe it or not, you're, you're going, that's going to impress uh, your instructor slash evaluator. Mm-hmm. It will. It really will. Do you concur? I concur. I concur. Okay. All right, Steph. Say goodbye. Say goodbye to everybody. Okay, bye. <laughs> Just that quick? Man, booting me out of here. Or you can say more if you'd like. No, I'll say cheers, y'all. And hopefully I'll be with y'all next week. We hope so, too. Mm-hmm. Hit that stop. All right. <laughs> Love it. There that we go. great. Oh, so there uh, was that piece of feedback, which was great feedback. And uh, Steph, Dr. Steph uh, provided us with a very 
uh, thorough, intelligent um, response. And I uh, tried to say something that was reasonable. And I would love to hear what uh, Camacho and Captain Nick have to say about it, because I'm sure they'll have something wonderful to say as well. You go ahead, Nick. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, I agree with both of you. Um, you know, it seems, I, I don't know, I feel like there is a, uh, kind of like what you were referring to, uh, Captain Jeff, it seems like there is uh, always a, uh, there's almost always a sense of urgency when anything's going on in the cockpit um, because you have to feel like you ha- you feel like you have less time to sort out the issue uh, than you would in any other activity in your daily life, I suppose. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that he had the big ones um, kind of under control and he was just, uh, you know, struggling a little bit with the, the, the smaller ones. But I, I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, there's a there's um there's really only a couple of things that'll, that'll really hurt you in an airplane. And, um, as long as you kind of keep that in the back of your mind, and you don't get overwhelmed by the, the smaller issues that you're running into. And, you know, you keep, keep your, keep your main focus on, uh, flying the airplane and accomplishing the things that'll, uh, you know, keep the, keep the airplane in control and keep the airplane flying. You really have, uh, plenty of time to, sort out any other issues you have. Um, and I kind of think back to like when I was doing multi-engine training of all the stuff that I've done, probably the, the, I don't know, the quickest, um, the failure with the, the fastest response time that I've had to deal with was when I was doing multi-engine training and having an engine failure either on takeoff or, uh, you know, at lower altitudes in multi-engine airplanes. And even there, I remember the instructor, uh, being adamant about, uh, being consistent in your flow and, um, verifying your data and verifying your action prior to doing it. Um, you know, all, even to the point where we would have an engine failure and our, you know, his procedure was to, you know, you'll have, you'll have all the rudder in on one, one foot, right? So you take your other foot back and you tap it three times, and then uh, that gives you a second to think and verify which engine's actually dead, and then you start moving through your flow. Um, you know, and so I think if you have time to do that in a a very critical uh, emergency like that, then I just need to keep in mind that anytime you're going through almost anything else in the cockpit, you probably have an extra 10 or 30 seconds or a minute to think through uh, what you're doing next. And... I think, uh, you know, it's also important to note that as you work in the airplane more and more, uh, you're going to become more familiar with everything that's going on. And so you're going to catch even uh, smaller issues, like smaller mistakes you make or smaller issues with the airplane. Um, So that's also where uh, it'll be important to um, recover from uh, issues or small incidents that you have in the airplane. So I sense from his feedback that part of the issue that he may be having, and the reason why I wanted you to kind of maybe give us uh, an answer regarding this, is the fact that 
seems like most of his training prior to getting hired by this uh, small regional carrier was single pilot. Pilot mm-hmm. and, and maybe uh, Captain Nick can also um, identify with this because a lot of his uh, flying before he joined the airlines or all of it was you know single pilot uh, flying. Um, and it, it seems to me that maybe part of his problem being pilot in command, single pilot, uh, he didn't have any issues because he he had to do everything. But maybe part of the problem might be how do I engage this resource in, in a multi-crew environment? How do I handle this situation? I don't know. I could be wrong, but that's what I kind of sense that that might be part of the problem that he's struggling with. Yeah, that could be. And I, I think that'd just be another thing, right, where if you've done if you've done anything for a long period of time or have a, a wide breadth of experience doing something and you change you change it even just a little bit, like adding a second opinion into the cockpit, um, I think it'll just get easier as you go. Um, you know, I've, I've flown with people who are very experienced pilots. Um, uh, like you say, as single, as uh, single seat pilots, well, like I've seen, um, you know, like fighter pilot type of people come in and uh, get in something like the C-47 and they have a little bit of um, multi-crew experience, but uh, it's just such a, it seems like such a minor thing, right? To go from uh, one pilot to two pilot operations. And I, I think that uh, from the outside looking in, you'd say, oh, that's easier because it's half the workload or you have someone backing you up. But I think to do it well, and we talk about this a lot, uh, you know, you you see it all the time when we have all these crew resource, crew resource management stories and, you know, other countries that don't do it as well and might, um, you know, might have some blockers in their society where their society and crew resource management are kind of in disagreement with each other. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it is a skill that you have to learn and, and kind of um, learn to be good at. And at the same time, when you're doing that, you probably have to unlearn some traits you have from flying single pilot. Okay. Very good. Thank you for your, uh, perspective on this. Um, Captain Nick. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very interesting subject. This, uh, thanks for bringing it up, Barry, although it obviously personally affects you. So we want to try and get to the bottom of this and give you some pointers. Just I, I empathize with you enormously about TIDODA and the other acronyms that have been introduced, and it's all part of the next generation of pilots. Um, rather than the way perhaps you and certainly I was brought up, we dealt with emergencies in uh, what we quite happily assumed was using airmanship. We didn't need to follow a set routine in order to make sure that we reviewed the problem, we assessed the, the confirmed the issue, we checked with other people. We, we did that as a matter of course, because that's how we had been taught to deal with emergencies. And at the end of a decision process, you went back, looked at it through again to make sure that that was still valid before implementing it. Um, nowadays, the, these uh, procedures are taught and airlines are introducing them and they are becoming uh, the run of the mill. Uh, but I was still working during the, our airline's transition. Last couple of years, 
Tidoda, you know, we just got a one-page memo. This is what Tidoda is, and we want you to do it from now on. And I'm going, oh, hell, well, you know, okay. uh, I don't really don't understand the need for this. I'm having to now try and forget 25 years of airline flying, let alone the preceding 20 years of other flying. Um, but, you know, you kind of do your best, uh, but it's very hard sometimes to teach a old dog new tricks anyway so I, I i feel for you however it's probably best since this you know you'll start your career on the airlines this is going to be something you will carry with you or have to perform from now on so probably best to embrace it and memorize it um when it comes to handling small problems, you're not really going through all the full nine yards of uh you know a an emergency um so um, I always found that with a, a small issue, the minimum equipment list was my Bible and uh, gave me usually, depending on how well it was written, all the information you needed about a snag to help you make that decision. But never make that decision on your own if you can possibly avoid it. Involve everyone around you because the more people who – are involved in a decision making the more you share the responsibility so even if it's something small try and get under the company try and get the engineers there to give you their advice to help you through should i accept this should i not what should i do about this etc um from that point of view though ultimately it will rest on your shoulders and i just say to you be a captain rick if you can uh, become highly competent at the technical side of how your aircraft operates so that with that knowledge comes confidence with your knowledge that if this fails the repercussions will be if i now get a subsequent failure on this system something's not going to operate that will restrict my ability to land to go a long way to trim the airplane whatever the the feature is and it's that kind of background technical lot knowledge that armors you against making bad decision and gives you the confidence that you need to kind of progress so that that will deal with you know all the secondary considerations that come with problems and having involved everyone and come to your own conclusion as to what you think is right make a decision with confidence and apply it but never forget that you need at some point to review that decision because situations always change and you should never be single-minded having said, right, this is our course of action. Never feel you will look stupid wavering from that because now, oh, okay, that runway is not available. Uh, all right, what's the, the other runway is a bit shorter. Are we still going to be able to do that at this airfield? Or do we need to divert? All that kind of consideration. So, you know, it, that will come with experience, and, and I'm sure you have it within you. You need probably to regain a little confidence, and uh, I, I wish you well in that. So all the best for the future. I agree as well. And uh, iHall Boxes in our live audience uh, makes a good point. CRM, one, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Two, what you do, uh, would you do what I would like to do? And three, are you happy with what we did? Repeat. Yeah, use your resources. You know, make sure that what the way you're analyzing the situation is the appropriate analysis, as Captain Nick so eloquently 
uh, just said. And the other thing that you mentioned, old school, we didn't have all these models and everything else. In fact, when I first read those acronyms, I think I have no idea what the heck <laughs> this guy is talking about. And uh, what, what I remember and what I recall from my basically the start of my flying was stand up. We're in a they present a situation and stand up in the in the military and you stand up, sir, I'd maintain aircraft control Two, analyze the situation. Three, take the appropriate action Four, land as soon as conditions permit. And and again, that land as soon as conditions permit that that's a that's a, a dynamic thing right if it's you've lost an engine you're on fire something that <laughs> land as soon as conditions permit is a very important thing in, in a lot of situations of most all these situations other than those big ones those time critical ones uh it's just uh being able to analyze everything and uh, make sure you've done the right thing and don't rush yourself and then uh, Jen Niffer in our audience says, I wonder if there are any independent courses outside of the airline on CRM and decision-making that could provide practice and advice and confidence. I don't know. There very likely might be. I don't know. All right. Um, thank you very much again for uh, the anonymous feedback there, and we completely understand that. And we hope that you can kind of give us some feedback as well and, you know, see if any of that advice uh, helped at all for you, uh, Mr. Barry. All right. Uh, we're going to end with some audio feedback from our good friend and fellow podcaster, Grant McCarran. Greetings, Jeff and crew. It's Grant from Plane Crazy Down Under. And yes, we're back on the airwaves and producing episodes having kicked off Series 2 earlier this year. Woohoo! We're back, baby. Now, in case anyone is wondering, I must confirm that my solicitations and felicitations to the APG crew do indeed extend even to that old carmagen with the less than salubrious views of hot air balloons. What's a carmagen? I all know who I'm talking about. Now, you know, I've taken a few RAF fighter pilots up for a flight and they've all survived. Some even thought it was quite an amazing experience seeing how we could go in different directions just with only such 50 to 100 foot of elevation change. But hey, given I'm way down here though, I might have to beg a favour from my friends who fly commercially up around the Nottingham area should Nick wish to experience humanity's first form of flight. I think it would be good for him to see just how we plan and execute our flights using those gentle winds at different altitudes for our propulsion and steering. Hmm, I think I'm safe on that one. But meanwhile, on a completely <laughs> different are. topic, the discussions about avoiding excess baggage reminded me of leaving Chicago back in 2011 after having attended Oshkosh. At check-in for my flight to LAX, I was advised that my luggage was overweight, mostly due to all the aviation books I'd picked up while at that mecca of aviation. The kind lady told me I could transfer a few of the books from my checked luggage over to my carry-on as that would solve the problem. Not wanting to raise the question of total weight in the aircraft, regardless of where my books were stashed, suffice to say I transferred enough to get the bag's weight under the limit and consigned myself to having to lug a few extra kilos on my carry-on, probably shoving it under the seat in front and losing a bit of leg room. Bolt. Well, imagine my surprise when she handed me my boarding pass and then told me to take my luggage around the corner to the baggage drop area. Uh, what? Yep. At that time, the airline's check-in and bag drop were in separate parts of the departures area. Go figure. 
Suffice to say, the additional weight was quickly added back to the outer storage areas of my checked luggage as I casually walked from one point to the other. Cheeky man. The chap at the bag drop checked my bags, (laughs) checked my tags, identified the one saying heavy, and lifted it promptly and with correct lifting form, I might add, onto the conveyor, whereupon it disappeared into the bowels of the system. Not a word being mentioned. Nothing. Ah, the good old days of 2011. Suffice to say, when I returned to Oshkosh in 2019, check-in and bag drop was all done in one spot, as you'd expect, but I was better prepared that trip, and my bag was just within limits, despite the books and bottle of Jeremiah weed that it was carrying. Thanks to the use of a scale at the hotel, I was able to verify it was fine before I left to the airport. So there you go. Luggage shenanigans take on many forms, and even a seasoned avgeek traveller can get caught out here and there. Meanwhile, Steve and I are enjoying producing Playing Crazy Down Under episodes once again, and we can be found at playingcrazydownunder.com as usual, demonstrating that PCDU isn't dead, it was just sleeping rather soundly for a while. Okay, folks, thanks to Jeff for letting me shamelessly plug our return, and thanks to those of you who have listened all the way through to my ramblings. For Nick, let me know if you do want to experience why balloonatics have been looking down on people since 1783, and I'll see what I can do. Just remember, folks, it's what's down under that counts. <laughs> it's a good one. What a what a joker. As if changing altitude changes your direction, none of them uh, will change your direction to the way you actually want to go. But <laughs> it will go. change your direction, though. It will, yeah. I, I, I've never conceded, worried about conceding that point. <laughs> Well, it's so great to hear that playing crazy down under is back after it's absolutely. Bit of a I, think I listened. Sounds great. Those two chatting away. Yep, excellent. And very happy to uh, promote our brothers in podcasting, aviation podcasting uh, down under. But I like in that. Fact, uh, uh, it's down you, under. Did you what hear counts. Our, our piece got played on their first show because they they kind of reviewed the. Uh, this, the, all the messages people said that they um, sent that they never put into their last show. They played oh. it in their first show. I did and, not. Uh, I haven't listened to uh, It was the back. APG crew all saying, you know, how sorry we were. Oh, good. And I was I'm singing Waltzing Matilda, and it was good. Okay. Well, I'll have, to, I'll have to take a listen. And I think all of you listening to this one, this show, should do the same. Please subscribe. Give them some love. And uh, and I know that uh, the community is uh, is great about doing that. It's a very um, inclusive and um, loving community supportive. out there. Yep. Supportive, yeah. Okay. Time to wrap it up, Jeff. It is time to wrap it up, Liz. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about our website, airlinepilotguy.com. All right. Uh, join us in the uh, video when you want, Liz. Uh, and, uh, it's a place where you can go and you can see all kinds of stuff, (laughs) lots of information about the crew, the community. We have the community calendar. We have the library. Miss Tiffany is our librarian and, uh, we have more information about each of the plane tales and, oh, by the way, I have to apologize quickly. Um, I, uh, in, in the midst of publishing one of the plane tales, you know, you can get that as a separate feed if you'd like. Um, and I didn't ensure that the entire length of the file was uploaded to the, uh, media server. And so it cut off like about four or five minutes before it was actually supposed to. So I had to re upload that file. So those of you who may have 
already downloaded. What was it called again? Uh, the Applegate Memorandum, I believe, was the one that uh, had I the think issue. that's the one. Yes, Jeff. Yeah, so I had to go in and redo it, re-upload, and kind of hold my mouth a little bit different way and cross my fingers and all that kind of stuff. And I think <laughs> I finally got it to take. It was not an easy thing for me, but uh, got it done. It was my mistake to begin with, so I do apologize for that. So if you're out there and you already have that in your uh, in your uh, uh, list of uh, shows to listen to on the Plain Tales, uh, you might want to uh, delete it and then re-upload it, and then you'll have the whole the, the whole thing. Anyway, it's a great story that one. Yeah, it was, um, and uh, so so much more that you can uh, find on on our website airlinepilotguy.com. and we're also on social media. And uh, I don't know, maybe you guys, you too, can uh, tag team the Knicks can uh, can do this together. Let's see what happens here. Nothing could go possibly wrong here at all. Oh, I'm going to go first, Nick. Okay. So Facebook okay. is Airline Pilot Guy, and just search for that. It's all one word, and you'll find our page there. Uh, and Liz, just a lot of posting of things that are going on, so that's good fun. Twitter is at uh, APG Crew, and that's where they post all the links for the live shows and the updates for when we're going to record. Yeah, called X nowadays. Instagram at, sorry, not at, not at APG Crew. That doesn't mean to say you can't get it by going APG Crew, but there's no at symbol in front of it. I think that we should call uh, the new uh, rebranded Twitter Twix. See, Twitter <laughs> X Twix. I don't know. We'll see Very good. Do you, do you get Twix bars in yeah, the Yeah, we Twix get Twix bars over here. You do. Yeah. Okay. Like they were invented here, weren't they? I don't know. You have such weird (laughs) stuff over there. And you do as well. All right. Uh, (laughs) Who's in your shower, Jeff? Well, I don't know. Let me see if I... Jeff, this is my private time. Would you let me finish a poop for once? Apparently, he's pooping. He's not in the shower, so... uh, (laughs) Well, let's hope it's not in the shower. Yeah, hope hope it's not in the shower. (laughs) That could be a mess. Although the the pipes go to the same place, you know, honestly. Uh, All right. So uh, let's uh, do the pre-recorded Slack uh, from Hillel. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Sorry to bother you. I guess everything is... Having so, private time again. Yeah, more private time. Tell him not to open the door till he's put the fan on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and uh, finally, we'd like to thank uh, Liz for her Yay! great work Thanks, uh, during and before and after the shows. Uh, such a big part of our show, and she made me uh, and all of us realize how much she means to us when she was absent for the first oh, half of our last. You were a shambles, Jeff. I know. <laughs> you were dreadful. Thank Nowhere. you. 
I don't know how oh. Jeff handled things by himself for so long. Honestly, there's so much to do. So. Well, I'd show you how I handle things, but that would be a different podcast. All right. <laughs> another show. Yeah, another show. All right. Um, anything else that we want to say before we sign off for uh, this episode? All right. Nope. Well, then, um, I guess I'll end it with saying, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and talons, Douglas. Jeff out. So long, everybody. See you next time. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly on